Welcome to Kurt Vonnegut's, the podcast dedicated to the life and works and ongoing things of Kurt Vonnegut because he's the greatest author of all time. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Michael Swaim. Hello, Alex. <laughs> Congratulations on your new job as host oh. of the Cracked Podcast. Hey, thank you very much. It's been uh, Some might have thought that as uh, co-host, um, I would have been in line for that position. Uh, okay. I don't know if you can hear it on the recording. There are a small group of people outside chanting, lock him up, lock him up. I don't think that's unjustified. <laughs> I mean, I mean, him could be either of us. So, you know, it's, it's really... I, had, I did commit a lot of crimes on the way over here. <laughs> it could just be the police shouting orders to one another as they infiltrate the building. We better get this show rolling. <laughs> Seriously, though, man, great job. Hey, appreciate it. Happy it's, to it's swear fun. allegiance and spill my blood for you if need yeah. be. Well, and it's, it, as, as I hope folks know, it's it's a team effort kind of thing. And so no, I'm excited to have a bunch of us. It's all you. It's gonna be you good. can say that. <laughs> and yeah, speaking of crimes and the police and mm-hmm. people being locked up, today's book is Jailbird, the 1979 Kurt Vonnegut novel yeah. that was pitched to me as his Nixon novel by the wider world. Very much more about like labor and a lot of things like that. Trump, 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 Trump. <laughs> Uh, very relevant to our times. I feel like we will have to talk about Trump more than most episodes, but also just how America is structured in general, specifically the profit motive. It's kind of his mar- his communist manifesto. Yeah. Or it's it felt like him laying out like, well, here's what I liked about communism. <laughs> Sorry. Excuse me. Right, right. Yeah. Directly. And here's what I don't like about capitalism. And uh, Mr. Rosewater, I feel like, was more about the types of very wealthy people who hoard all the money in America and the psychology of why. You mean the the book, God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater? Absolutely. The the character. Yeah, yeah. And yes, whereas this one is more like literally a treatise on, well, here's how the working class in America is structured, and this is how they get fucked systemically. (laughs) Right. And And how how capitalism corrupts. Yeah, and pretty uh, neatly woven into uh, the story of the book. And I think we can get into a segment called Definitely. Plot Time. Oh, I <laughs> saw <laughs> that coming this okay. time, oh, yeah. but I still okay. have yeah. nothing prepared. Ba, 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 ba. Nice. <laughs> nice coda. Very good coda. <laughs> Thanks. I'm like a hype man, but also for tunes, mm-hmm. I guess. I don't know. You're like a tune yard. <laughs> uh, this, uh, this book is pretty straightforward, I think, in terms of the story of it. And it's also, yet again, we keep finding with Kurt Vonnegut's books that the prologue or, or introduction or whatever is hugely important. In this one, the prologue is, in my edition, 39 pages and kind of the whole book. Like, it's Dang. a lot of personal <laughs> story and things that are, are so crucial that he gets into. I hit the wrong button on my Kindle, so now mine just says prologue, location 71, and like that no, provides no mm. useful information. So I don't have a percentage breakdown like I did last time. <laughs> but yes, it's quite lengthy. And then the epilogue, I believe, starts with a quote, there's more, there's always more, yeah. which I think is his nod to himself of like, well, you know the drill at this point, here comes the epilogue. <laughs> of course there's an epilogue. Yeah, I mean, because he spelled out in Breakfast of Champions that no story ends yes. in actual life. And so I think he's sticking to that rigorous yes. idea of no story ends, and that's how I'm going to do it. 
I think it's apt, so I'll continue comparing his work from this period to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You got to have a post credit scene. I mean, it just, you can't not have it. Yeah. It's yeah, yet yeah. another connection. Yeah. There's actually, we'll get to it. There's some specific, I think he really did that. Totally. Another. I, uh, I have a physical copy of the book, and mine has like a little drawing at the beginning of a ramjack teacup with then a bird on it. That's a prothonotary warbler. Yeah, that's how that's pronounced. But that's an actual bird that will come up in the book. That's an adorable drawing, and yeah, really cute. The way it's perched above the teacup, in the context of having read the book, you know that it's about to take a dump, which is very funny. <laughs> yeah, like that with the and added somebody's drink. Yeah, right. It's in a beautiful picture, but with the addition of having read the book ahead of time, you know it's actually a picture of a bird shitting. Yeah. Yeah, he loves stuff like that. It's great. And I think that speaks to his whole, the key to the Vonnegut universe I'm finding is FOMA. And it's it's really the root of existential philosophical thought as well. He believes that things gain power as symbols based on the meaning you invest in them. Yeah. So he loves drawings that change meaning the second time or any or words that change meaning the second time. Yeah, I think so. And yeah, especially this one doesn't have any art in it that I caught, but I, but he still sure. worked that into the title in some kind of, yeah. oh, bird pooping in a drink. Here we go. <laughs> or someone thought It means there. everything yeah. or nothing. Yeah. And then also before the prologue, there's a dedication to Benjamin D. Hitz, who is an actual friend of Kurt Vonnegut's youth, as he says in the prologue. And, uh, and that's about it. Just I think just dedicating it to a friend. It's a nice yeah. thing. So there's a little poem for it, but it's just what it is. Yep. The first line of the prologue explicitly breaks the promise he made in Breakfast of Champions. Yeah. And I like that he obliquely references that fact because basically at the Breakfast of Champions, he said, my mind is like a prison for these characters and I've decided to free them to go live whatever mysterious lives characters live when we're not watching them. Yeah. And then the first line of this prologue is, yes, Kilgore Trout is back again. He could not make it on the outside. (laughs) And he's literally in this book is in prison. Yeah. The character is a convict in prison. So uh, I just, I do feel like that's an oblique reference to like, yeah, hey, I took it back. I'm going to keep using Kilgore Trout. Get over it. Oh, for sure. Because, <laughs> well, yeah, it is really interesting where he promises in Breakfast of Champions that in real life, all stories continue forever. And so that's what I'm going to do. And he keeps that up in this. Then also he, at the very beginning of this, when he's like, Kilgore Trout couldn't make it on the outside. He's in the story. I'd never read this novel before we prepped this episode. And so I read that and thought, like, oh, here we go. Like, this is a whole Kilgore Trout book right oh, here. Oh, yeah, sure. But he borderline isn't in the book, too. Kilgore Trout's just the alternate pen name of another guy who's not the Vonnegut stand-in, and that's it. You know, like, he's in the book yes. in that way, but it's sort of a curious decision to put him in at all. Well, I would say he's more in the book in the sense that I feel like, like Breakfast of Champions, this book includes a higher-than-usual percentage of self-encapsulated Kilgore Trout short stories that have a beginning, middle, and end and are dropped in. That's true, yeah. So maybe he just feels like if he's going to use Kilgore Trout stories in his book, Kilgore Trout has to be there to earn it. (laughs) But yeah, and he feels totally different than he's felt in other books. Like, this is not the Kilgore Trout of Breakfast of Champions. Right. But the sci-fi short stories he produces are identical. The Kilgore Trout from Breakfast of Champions could have written them. Oh, for sure, yeah. But this guy's described that. differently physically. His life story is different. And he even, I would say, has a different temperament. Because it's a guy uh, named Robert, Dr. Robert Fender. Yeah, Bob Fender. And his main pen name is Frank X. Barlow. And then his other pen name that he uses some of the time is Kilgore Trout. And that's the extent that Kilgore Trout is literally in the book. That's it. But you're right. There's yeah. so much in his stories and his style that matches it. 
Yeah, and we'll get there as they come up, but there's three or four at least great Kilgore Trout stories that would make good Twilight Zone episodes embedded in this. Yeah, yeah. Um, So then he immediately opens with praising Dillinger, or I would say humanizing Dillinger. John Dillinger, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because Dillinger famously escaped very cleverly using a bar of soap shaped to look like a gun and then covered with shoe polish. Yeah. And, you know, he was like a Robin Hood figure, and the cops gunned him down outside a movie theater. But I don't know. He was a, like a murderous, multi-murdering, essentially a mass shooter, serial killer. Yeah. He went around robbing people and killing some people along the way. So, I, I mean, a fair trial is always nice. But later, one of the central themes of the novel is going to be Sacco and Vanzetti are like true martyrs and should be remembered on the order of like Jesus Christ. Yeah. And I feel like he's setting that up with... When I was a kid, Dillinger was that for me, and I just think it kind of weakens it because I actually don't think Dillinger deserves as much credit as Sacco and Vanzetti, who are truly great guys. When you said Vonnegut really believes in FOMA in the way he does, I feel like he has a an instinctual FOMA, even though he knows it doesn't matter that like Indiana people are important, kind of no matter oh, what. Oh, is Dillinger Indiana? And, in, and Dillinger is an Indiana person. And then he in this prologue, he thinks of Dillinger because he gets a letter from a guy named John Figler in Crown Point, Indiana, and that makes him think of Dillinger because that's where he's buried. Mm-hmm. And so I think he sort of has a soft spot for Dillinger just because he's from Indiana, on sure. top of being a famous person from his youth and, and all those other things. You like he and like Vonnegut knows, the yeah, he, and he knows that's a grand falloon, but on some level it matters to mm-hmm. him too. It's a nice uh, look at kind of how he, in practice in life, handles that. Yeah. He does another Rye description of his life, basically, which is in a lot of the prologues. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My favorite, well, not favorite is weird word to use, but ends with, uh, my mother, as I have said ad nauseum in other books, had declined to go on living since she could no longer be what she had been at the time of her marriage, one of the richest women in town. <laughs> um, so that's sad. But and he, yeah. and he gives everything away. He tells you what characters are stolen from real people, what the real people's names were, if you want to look them up. So, like, Kenneth Whistler will be in this. He's basically Powers Hapgood, who is a real person. Yeah. Labor organizer. And also an Indiana person. Yeah. yeah. And it's uh, it's basically, it's like the director's commentary. I think this one more than others. Before the book, he explains where all the ideas sprang from. And, yeah. 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 He goes way in depth into an actual lunch he had with Powers Hapgood and also his dad and his uncle Alex. Uh, and he tells his family story again, like you said, he tells where a couple of the fictional characters will directly come from real characters. And then the end of the prologue, it transitions into a fictional story about a labor strike that ended up being a bloodbath that's based on real strikes called the Cuyahoga Massacre. It's a weird shift. He's He had been talking all about his real life, and then suddenly he's setting up the whole backstory of the book too he explains this event is going to be the central premise of this book this is a fake event based on a real event here's the fake historical details of this fake event yeah so that you're filled in so in the book i can just reference it yeah and you remember what we're talking about which is very (laughs) odd it's like how donnie darko makes sense after it's explained to you which i have done to people I'm like, oh, you haven't seen it yet? All right, let me explain it before you watch it. (laughs) Then watch it, and you'll like it more. So he's doing a bit of that. He throws in a short story that, like, gets aborted halfway through, which I do like. He says, 
I started writing a short story yeah. I was gonna use in this, so it even includes deleted scenes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> where whenever you die, you get to go, when you go to heaven, you get to choose whatever age you wanna be. And I was gonna arrive at heaven at the pearly gates and decide I wanna be the age I was when I died, or like 74 or whatever, because I feel comfortable that age. And then I go seek out my father, who's been dead for some time, and I realize he chose like six years old. Yeah. And I still want to have a relationship with him because he's my dad, but it's a pain in the ass. I constantly have to explain to people, like, no, he's my dad. (laughs) He gets bullied a lot because he was like a weird kid. I have to protect him from bullies who constantly like steal his underwear and throw them down to hell (laughs) as a prank. So sometimes Hitler has to smell my dad's underwear. And he's like, and then the story petered out. I couldn't think of anything good to do with it. <laughs> so that story's not in the book. Right. Yet it is. But it, right. <laughs> the attempt is in it. Yeah. yeah. Which is great. And then he segues very abruptly into a horrible massacre. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's about a factory that is, uh, it's like the Cuyahoga Bridge and Iron Company, I think it is. And it's sort of vaguely based on the actual Pullman strike in real life in 1894. And it's the fake one is in the same year. And it's a labor strike by employees who are living in a company town owned by the factory and are shot out of it. And then the troops are called out and basically people start shooting. And The owners have become your classic like plutocrats who run the factory with an iron fist, but they don't know anything about how the work is done. They're scared of the workers and all the machines in the factory. Yeah. Totally out of touch. But all they know is they have to like crush the unions by any means necessary they foolishly think, like, I know it'll solve this. Hire some armed men to just come and threaten them. Yeah. They're not that serious about their rights. Like, they'll just disperse, which inevitably leads to a massacre, of course. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's nasty and rough. And then it also gives us the origin story of our main character, who's going to be Walter F. Starbuck. Mm-hmm. And he is the son of the chauffeur and cook for the plant owners, the McCones. And then in the process, the son of the owner of the factory, Alexander Hamilton McCone, is a very rich man who develops a stutter and a speech impediment from the trauma of this and other things. And he needs a friend, and so he makes young Walter F. Starbuck his kid that he plays chess with and then builds his whole life from there. This is all still the prologue, yeah. So yeah, and all still in the prologue. I'm going to yeah. recap it for clarity's sake because it, com- it comes up again and again. Al, uh, Daniel McCone is like the ancestral progenitor of the family and owns the factory where the massacre took place. Yeah. His son, Alexander Hamilton McCone, is an important figure in the book because he sort of, quote unquote, raised our main character, Walter Starbuck, literally changed his name <clears throat> to Starbuck. It used to be Stankowicz yeah. or Stankowicz, Stankowitz, I don't know. Something like that. Um, yeah. uh, Stanky, good old Stanky, <laughs> and uh, changed it to Starbuck. And uh, forced him to play chess and be his buddy growing up because he had no friends and he was a weird rich dude with a stutter. Yeah. Again, like any of the Trump sons uh, (laughs) is a good uh, analog. And his parents were both servants of that family. His dad was the chauffeur and his mom was a housekeeper. And they were both super devoted to the rich family and didn't cause trouble. And so he has this weird paternal relationship with him. Yeah. Yeah. And Alexander Hamilton McCone... Developed a stutter because he sort of lost his innocence and realized his money's all tainted with blood. The line I like from it is he said he realized when he first realized he like grew up a rich man, he wanted to know where the money came from and why and if they were doing the right things. And he looked into it and he's like, that was very juvenile of me. Great wealth should be accepted unquestioningly or not at all. Yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> I think it's his admission that like 
anyone who has a vast amount of money did something horrible or their ancestors did something horrible. Yeah. So if you're going to be okay with that, just don't even look into it. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of it's sort of drawing on that God bless you, Mr. Rosewater thing where Vonnegut says that all the major American fortunes were made by like profiteers from the American Civil War. And then just right. they just invested in So if you inherited there. it, just yeah. don't even look into it. Or right. give up your money if you think you should give it up if it's evil, you know. Yeah, yeah. Be and fine he, with it or don't. <laughs> <laughs> and there and there's one other thing from the prologue where he's talking about Powers Hapgood's life, who was, like we said, an actual labor organizer. And Hapgood was on trial at one point, and the judge asked him why he did what he did working with labor, because Hapgood was born into wealth, sent to private prep schools, went to Harvard, and and had, you know, the sort of the world at his feet, and instead became not only a labor organizer, but an actual laborer. Like, he worked in mines, he worked in canneries, he worked for railroad companies. And the judge asked him why he did all that, and Hapgood said, why, because of the Sermon on the Mount. And so mm-hmm. then this book is doing a lot of setup right away of it's about labor and capitalism. It's also about Christianity and morals there and how it all fits in together. And he tells you, I stole that line. The main character is going to say it and act like it's his line, but yeah. it's not. I stole it. Yeah. <laughs> and from there, we I almost feel like the and it's also the prologue like ends on a nice little scene of almost like. It's not quite a good parallel, but the very end of The Godfather, when they just sort of, you sort of see Michael in the office, and now he's going to be the Don. Like, it's sort of, the last scene is like, and now he's played chess with the old man, and here we go. Well, and he does say, yeah, so I used to ride in the, start riding in the front seat, or the back seat (laughs) with Mr. McCone when my dad was chauffeuring him around. And of course, like most limousines, there was a glass partition between us. I didn't think of it as suggestive at the time. Yeah. So yeah, it is very Godfather like, or like Mr. Burnsian. Yeah. His, right, his right. origin story with the Bobo. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the poor family sold him to the rich family because they think he'll have a better life. Yeah. Let's begin. <laughs> uh, the actual book itself opens with a quote from Nicola Sacco in his last letter to his 13 year old son Dante three days before his execution. I'll read it. It's short. It's it was important to Kurt. Yeah. Help the weak ones that cry for me. Help the prosecuted and the victim, because they are your better friends. They are the comrades that fight and fall as your father and Bortolo, that's Vanzetti, fought and fell yesterday for the conquest of the joy and freedom of all the poor workers. In this struggle of life, you will find more love and you will be loved. So take that for what it is. It sets up the story. Chapter yeah. one. <laughs> well, and, and also, if in case you don't know of Sacco and Vanzetti, they're actual people from history. They were uh, Italian immigrants to America. And they were anarchists. And they were also probably wrongly convicted of robbing and murdering at a shoe company in Massachusetts in 1920. And then there was a worldwide attempt to exonerate them. But because they were probably just convicted because they were anarchists. But they were not exonerated and they were executed. This is embarrassing. I think you're confusing them with Rizzoli and Isles. <laughs> or wait, no, am I? Oh, yeah. God. Uh, <laughs> Franklin and Bash okay. were yep. two. <laughs> they, they wore suits. Psych. Chapter uh, one. But yeah, chapter one of the book. <laughs> we'll get into Sacco and Vanzetti more because there's a whole explanation of their life story. So chapter one starts with him basically explaining. It's always hard to tell his plots at some points because you're like, 
Well, he's just, he explains something. <laughs> yeah, a lot of this book, like so many of Vonnegut's books, there's no suspense. Throughout the yes. book, he'll be like, this is exactly what happened to me throughout my entire life. Then this thing was happening, but actually it was going to be this later on, and I'll find that out later on. You know, there's no, and so the very beginning of the book is Walter listing every year something important happened to him in his entire life. He was born in nineteen. It's the outline of the plot of the book. It's just yeah. the whole book is right there. <laughs> and he's also, as he's doing this, it's the day he is going to be released from a federal minimum security prison on the edge of an Air Force base in Georgia. Here's what I ultimately figured out, which is crazy. Technically, right now... He's sitting in his Ramjack down-home records office, writing oh. a journal about the day he was to be released from prison. Oh, right. Yeah. For his part he played in the Watergate scandal. <laughs> and that's what we're reading. Yeah. We're reading a, an account of his life he's writing as he sits in the Ramjack vice president's office, about yeah. to go to jail again for the second time. And he says, <laughs> and by the end, you'll know why I'm going to jail again. Don't worry about it. Yeah, yeah. But earlier in my life, I was getting out of jail, and let me take you to that day. Yeah. That's the first scene we get, and is before, he's Shawshanking it. Right, right. <laughs> and before that, we had the labor strike, adopted by the McCones, basically, then sent to prep school, sent to Harvard, works for multiple administrations from FDR up to Nixon, is then jailed for a small, small part in the Watergate scandal, and then tries to kind of put together the rest of his life from there, and then that's the book. Yeah. Reveals that he's estranged from his son and his wife is dead. Yeah. And no one's coming to pick him up. He's sitting, waiting for the guard whose job it is to come walk him to the front gate and let him out. Even though it's such a white collar prison, there are no locks on any of the doors. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> he, ba he says, uh, this is the only suspense in the book I found. He says, I was sitting there thinking, and every so often I would <laughs> clap my hands three times. I will explain why by and by. Oh, yeah. Like the, so that was important to keep as a surprise. Fine. And then like 15 pages later, he explains, he explains it. it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, which is basically that he has a stupid, dirty schoolyard rhyme stuck in his head yeah. that ends with clapping. And he's compulsively clapping as it cycles through his head whenever it gets to the clapping part. Yeah. And the rhyme, I think, is it's about a lady like farting her pants off, basically. It's and so, uh, so the claps like are her little, farts. I'm paraphrasing, but it's like little Sally Cinders. Sorry, little <laughs> Sally something sifting cinders in the garden, lifted up her leg and farted like a man. Yeah. It busted out her bloomers, broke 16 winders, and the cheeks of her ass went clap, clap, clap. Right. And I bring that up <laughs> because he seems to love dirty nursery rhymes and he includes them in a lot of his things yeah. and i don't know if that just became an affect of his personality or do you think there's a deeper meaning to them thematically in his work i think one of his there's other books where he says that oh what is holy all music and romeo and juliet like he, i think he, he highly <laughs> believes in that stuff and then on a secondary level he thinks all comedy is meaningful on some level or another. So like he le he'll just put in stupid jokes and songs and things because I think he believes that it's some kind of positive feeling you can have in this veil of tears uh, as you go. I feel like it could just as easily be the opposite though because later we're going to get a story where an alien accidentally thinks he's wise because he's sitting there clapping oh. and like merges its being with him and then finds out, oh shit, he was just thinking of this stupid nursery rhyme. <laughs> it almost feels like the nursery rhymes show us that no matter how like classy or sophisticated you think you are, you're just a s stupid kid. 
Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It could be. Well, because also I feel like in the course of the book, we don't find out that Walter is a good person yeah. or like a great human, you know? So oh, this could I'm be I'm glad you felt his, that way. His overall progress. I thought he was one of the d- least likable protagonists. Yeah. And I want to get into why. Yeah. But yeah, I yeah. was worried that only I thought that. Cool. Oh, no. Yeah, same. Do you have any of those from your childhood? Were there any like super filthy songs on the playground? Not that I can think of, no. Okay, there's one that I, because of this book, <laughs> sang for my girlfriend, and she's like, no, no one's ever heard that. And I'm like, well, then people need to know. <laughs> Very short. Let's broadcast it. Kurt would love it. It's filthy as hell. <laughs> fuck, fuck, fuck a duck, screw a kangaroo, finger banging orangutan at the San Diego Zoo. <laughs> you ne- Have you heard that, Brett? No, it must be a San Diego thing. I like clearly regional. <laughs> right. But I'm surprised it didn't like anyway, my San Diego peeps will like feel their heartstrings pluck now. Right. That's like a whole real hometown mention. You didn't have any of those. All right, fine. I don't think so. Yeah. Moving on. <laughs> so anyway, he's gonna get sent to Harvard by the wealthy man. Yeah. I just so think uh, finger banging to Harvard is a good segue. <laughs> <laughs> well, and he, he also talks about how almost everybody in the minimum security prison is a Harvard person or a very highly educated person. It's and just how you shouldn't think going to Harvard means you're different than anyone or you're, which I think is an important recurring theme, especially if you're fighting for uh, social equality. Yeah. The supposition you have to work on from is everyone's human. And Harvard is one of those buzzwords that makes you feel like, and so is like being a celebrity above a certain fame level. It's like, Oh, they're not human. They're somehow different than me. Yeah. And uh, like, I mean, a lot of rappers even cultivate that separation. Like, I'm a god. I'm not human. (laughs) Well, Kanye West, literally, I am a god. (laughs) Literally. But I mean, a lot of that's a big in rap is the separation and, you know, lots of other art forms, like being a magician, for example. But I don't think Kurt's coming down on the magicians quite as hard as he's coming down on people who have the finest education and the most family wealth, and they try to project this image that they deserve that because they're intrinsically different than other humans, and he just points out repeatedly, obviously they're not. Yeah. Like, you must know that they're just as confused as you. Life is way more complex than anyone's going to grasp in one lifetime. Even if they went to Harvard, like, you know, jerk off motion, who cares? <laughs> That's what he's saying. Like, he's like, most of the people in the jail went to Harvard. Yeah. Who gives a shit? Yeah. Right. It's all. And he talks about how when he started working in the FDR administration and there were a lot of Harvard people, he was like, oh, yeah, that makes total sense to me, obviously. And then by the time he got to Nixon, he was like, nah, we're all just people. This right. Is like he used to think it was really important that, the, oh, of course, all the Harvard people are here because they're the smartest. And then he yeah. was like, oh, no, the Harvard people are here because it's a boys club for Harvard alumni. That's all. Yeah. yeah. It just worked out that way. <laughs> but and, he is going to get sent to Harvard. Yeah. In exchange for his services as a creepy old man's friend. (laughs) Right, right. And then he talks about how after Harvard, that got him a lot of, you know, upstanding jobs. One of those was to work in Europe right after World War II. And in the process of that, he met his only wife, Ruth, who he'll say is one of the four women he's ever loved in his life. One being his mother. Yeah. And then two girlfriends and a wife and Ruth. Yeah, yeah. And then he basically catches up. I mean, he alternates between filling you in and the present. In the present on his cot, 
He's waiting for the guard. The guard's name is Clyde Carter. He's the spitting image of Jimmy Carter for no reason. He's yeah. Jimmy Carter's cousin. Yeah, third cousin. <laughs> third yeah, yeah. cousin. <laughs> I um, think he just wanted to do a Georgia thing. And also Carter was the president when he wrote the book. So yeah. it's just like it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he says he thinks about Sacco and Vanzetti. When I was young, I thought that the story of their martyrdom would come to be as important as the story of Jesus Christ. Yeah. It won't. It hasn't. I see that now. Yeah. And then he says... He's, oh, by the way, casually referencing the ultimate lack of suspense, casually referencing this whole time, there's a giant fictional corporation called the Ramjack Corporation that yeah. owns fucking everything. Like he says, uh, and, in, and it's just in passing. It's a fun technique. In passing, he constantly mentions it. So he'll go like, and I was thinking, what would I eat when I get out? Maybe McDonald's? Like I haven't had a McDonald's burger in so long. McDonald's, a wholly owned subsidiary of the Ramjack Corporation. Yeah. And then he's like, this massacre happened. They foolishly called in Pinkertons. Pinkertons, of course, a wholly owned subsidiary of Ramjack. <laughs> so you slowly but steadily get the impression throughout the book, relentlessly, that Ramjack controls the world. They're the obvious symbol of Omnicorp. Like, they are the conglomerate. Yeah. He's going to make any statements he makes about corporate America by having Ramjack do it. Right. Or represent it. Yeah. It yeah. So you need that piece on the board. That's on the board. And he's continuing to meet people in prison as he also looks back on his life. Uh, he looks back on how Ruth was the person who kind of put their life together and also just a much greater human than him. Like she was a Jewish person who had escaped the concentration camps for a while and then been put in them and then been freed from them. And because she was a polyglot and spoke a bunch of languages, she was used to help kind of process people coming out of the camps because she could talk to everyone. Then the two of them fell in love. And then they married and got a house in Maryland outside of D.C. and tried to kind of build a life. And she was the one who supported the family while he kind of doddered around being a useless Harvard guy. Yeah, he didn't get a job because all the jobs he could get he felt were beneath him because he yeah. like he's Harvard man. He should have a better job. Fucking asshole. <laughs> so he let his wife support him and she supported him incredibly ingeniously and through like great business savvy. She launched three different businesses, two failed, and she just took it with good humor and tried a third thing. And the third thing worked and she made enough money to support them all. Despite the fact that he says like he was really clumsy as her assistant and he like burned $1,100 worth of fabric one time that was for a client. Yeah. And basically was such a useless husband and father figure that it's never implied, like, there's no clear falling out. His son just sort of feels like, you were shit. Like, the estrangement of his son, he one day says to him, we'll get to the quote, I'm sure, but is like, mom died and I blame you. <laughs> not because, like, obviously you're not a monster, but all the little things, you just suck. She was a great lady. You put yeah. pressure on her her whole life and you were just like a weight around her neck. <laughs> I loved her. I don't love you. Please don't ever talk to me again. Yeah. And that is obviously devastating to him. But he's also like, fair enough. <laughs> like, you're right. I'm kind of yeah. shitty. <laughs> um, when his, and and also, you've been to jail and out and now you're in this Watergate scandal. I just don't respect you as a father, basically, is what the son says. Yeah. And they also do a thing where, because they have one son, Walter Jr., which made me think of Breaking Bad. Of but, course. Uh, but Walter Starbuck, the main character, he had had his last name changed from Stankowitz to Starbuck because they thought it would help him get into Harvard. And then the son, Walter Starbuck Jr., changes his last name back to Stankowitz because he wants to create distance between I love, him and he's his like, father. And there he's like, but you know, the reason we changed it is... People in America will think you're stinky. It sounds like the word stink. And he's like, 
I'd rather be stinky. He doesn't say this, but <laughs> yeah. that's the implication. Then be your son. Right. I'd rather be stank. Stank man. <laughs> Fuck you, dad. Yeah. Fuck you, dad. And uh, yeah, what else is going on? Oh, um, he, he projects that at some point he will end up being the vice president of the Down Home Records division of Ramjack. Right. He says he keeps trying to meditate, which I bring up because, you know, it's my favorite Kurt theme. Uh, I think he does believe in mindfulness and meditation. He tries to meditate, but the most he can ever do is 10 seconds at a stretch, and then the Sally Cinder song comes back into his head. <laughs> yeah. And he does a Mother Night interlude where a hypocritical Christian dude who was like intimately involved in the worst parts of Watergate, yeah. but has found God in prison, comes and tells him what a bad <laughs> dude he is and how he's going to go to jail because he doesn't, or hell. Because he doesn't accept Jesus Christ. And he's like, just leave me alone. Yeah. You're a criminal who found Jesus in jail. Just leave me alone. <laughs> the guy, the and guy, the guy's all smug at him. I hate that guy. <laughs> <laughs> His name is Emil Larkin. And yeah. he also quotes him, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, verse 41, and uses it as a thing of, oh, you'll go to hell if you do the wrong things. And Walter takes it as, I don't know, man, I think Jesus was just grumpy that day or something. That doesn't really sound like his overall message. Yeah, which is a really like funny you found your, pick, your cherry picking quotes. Yeah. I choose to believe the overall theme of everything Jesus said, like the right. thrust of it. Now, like this one. And angry he's bit. like, well, then you're a bad Christian and you're going to hell and I'll pray for you. And he's like, Sh -sh please. He literally at one point goes like, I'm an old man. Please leave me alone. <laughs> like, I'm leaving jail today. Fine, I'm going to hell. I don't care. <laughs> and uh, it's a it's a dumbed down version, I think, of Mother Night, where Herman Goering is like, right. "How are you sleeping? Well, real bad because we were Nazis. How are you sleeping? Oh, good. Well, I found Jesus, so I sleep like a baby." Yeah. And he's like, "Be fucking killed everyone!" And he's like, "Yeah, but that's in the past." Yeah, so like some people can do that. Some people have the ability to just like. Yeah. Forgive themselves in that way, yeah. And going just like, how do I get into publishing? Which is the funniest <laughs> the best response, yeah. thing to me. Yeah. He's like, how do you feel about all those Jews, gypsies, and homosexuals we caused to be tortured and killed? I mean, fine. Do you know any good publishers, though? <laughs> right. I heard you're connected in that field. Uh, what, what did you ask? Oh, we'll come back. We'll circle yeah, back we'll get to, to that. that. Whatever that was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He also meets a prisoner named Dr. Carlo de Sanza who was a famous Ponzi scheme guy and who believes that the whole country is a Ponzi scheme, if you look at it's it It's right. just a tour of hip hypocrisy. Yeah. He also meets uh, Dr. It's Robert morality Fender. play. And well, wait, before we move on from Sansa, because he'll never come up again, Yeah, I just want to describe the little morality play there, because I do think this is kind of a Siddhartha, if Siddhartha did not learn any of the lessons or achieve enlightenment. Hmm. But the journey is there, and all the signposts are there where he could have learned the lessons, and you, yeah. the reader, can choose to learn them or not. So Which this guy's deal is, he is a super patriot who thinks America is the greatest country in the world specifically because it's a country where he finds it very easy to commit mail and insurance fraud schemes. <laughs> right. And he's like, but you keep getting arrested. And he's like, so? I've been a millionaire twice in this country and back at zero. And when I get out of here again, I'll become a millionaire again. And he's like, oh, you're going straight? And he's like, no, with a goddamn mail fraud scheme. <laughs> right. Because this is the greatest great country, country in the world. <laughs> so there's that form of delusional hypocrisy on display as well. Yeah, which is great. And he, he also meets uh, Dr. Robert Fender, who is also in jail. And uh, we get into his science fiction story writing and also Fender's backstory where he was 
in the military in the Pacific and then accidentally fell in love with a nightclub singer who was also a North Korean spy yeah. who sang Edith Piaf songs just kind of verbatim, like almost karaoke style in clubs. Yeah. So I think before that, we get the sci-fi short story about Starbuck, right? And then it segues because yeah. he says... The planet uh, Vicuna. But I think that story, I think the story of his life is just as good as one of his sci-fi stories. And that's sort of the transition. Yeah. But uh, just in the interest of going in order, he explains how uh, when he worked for the Nixon administration, he was the uh, consultant on youth affairs, in which capacity he worked in a tiny sub-basement, never spoke to anyone, and never did anything. That's a recurring theme of his life. He is unimportant and doesn't do anything. Yeah. He says, I could have written the same report every week, which is like, remember, this is the 60s. Young people still seem to believe that, like, there's a way we could not have war and everyone could be happy. I'm sure they'll grow out of it. He's like, I could have just said that every week and everyone yeah. would have been fine. <laughs> but then, sorry, I backed this up and now I forget. Oh, so then he meets Bob Fender. And by way of meeting Bob Fender, he says, oh, I should tell you one of his sci-fi stories. And one of his sci-fi stories is, it's a lot like Unready to Wear, which yeah, is from is. what? Monkey House? I think Monkey House. Okay. Yeah. Uh, which we've covered before on the show. But a short story, basically, in a real quick nutshell, there's a society where the aliens can disinhabit their bodies whenever they want, like can become a soul. Yeah. But they're like barnacles, is how he describes it. There's a point in their life where they hit puberty or like a life change, where the next time they enter a body, they'll be stuck to it forever. The planet gets destroyed Superman style. One of the last souls eventually makes its way all the way through space to Earth and is like, oh, there's living creatures here. It's taking inventory of what kind of thing to be. It realizes humans are dominant, and it descends onto this nicely appointed-looking large building, which turns out to be a white-collar prison in Georgia. Descends in and is like looking for the wisest individual and it finds an old man just sitting staring into space who looks very wise, goes in his head and becomes stuck to him forever and as we referenced before, realizes he's just singing a nursery rhyme about a chick farting over and over and goes, oh boy, bad choice and that's like the end of the story. Yeah. That's the punchline. And it's a, a pretty nice job of super directly adapting what's actually happening happening in our book into, yeah, but oh, also, now here's a funny sci-fi way you could play that out. Totally. Yeah. And his way of saying he's honored to be in one of the stories by Frank or uh, Bob Fender, yeah. who he thinks is a good writer. And he, he says, he'll, he projects ahead of time. And I'll mention several of his story synopses later in the book. Yeah. Bob Fender, it turns out, is a super nice dude, totally unlike Breakfast of Champions. <laughs> so he always makes you a present when you're leaving prison, anyone who gets out. So he likes he darned his suit, basically, which was covered in cigarette burns. It's important to the plot that you know that Bob Fender's a very nice man. So that's just an yeah. embedded detail. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Tell us about this North Korean lounge singer, Alex. <laughs> So Fender is a very, very low-ranking person in the U.S. military in the Pacific. His squad mates basically tell this lounge singer who's secretly a spy that he's the key person to the whole war. I think he has atomic materials or something like that. He, Yeah, he guards the atomic stockpile, which yeah. obviously her superiors would immediately be like, well, that's your mission now. Right. Seduce that dude. Like, just seduce him. Yeah. <laughs> and so she does, but finds that in the end, he just, I forget if he, ha- I think he handles meat or well, he handles waste. He inspects like meat. Yeah. He meat. inspects meat before it goes to the mess hall. Yeah. And the friends drunkenly tell her, <laughs> sitcom style. Oh, that's no, where they keep this. Go up to this dude. You see this dude? Yeah. Oh, you want to talk to him? He has all the nukes. He's going to say he inspects meat, though. That's his. Shh. 
That's his cover. Yeah, yeah. So, like, she doesn't... He's very honest with her. <laughs> I just want to clear, he's not complicit in the prank. Right. But she's like, oh, I got you. Inspect yeah. meat. Wink, wink. Wink, wink, wink. How about I inspect some meat and you give me those codes? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then he takes her back to where he keeps the meat and uh, she... <laughs> if you know what I'm saying. Because uh, well, it's it, also his bedroom. Right. He, he also, does sleep like, in the meat warehouse. <laughs> yeah, he's so low rank, he like, sleeps with the gross meat. And then she finally eventually realizes in the press of the night, like, oh, he really is just a meat inspection guy. But she feels so sorry for him that she sleeps with him and spends the night with him. Then the military people are looking for a North Korean spy all over the base. And Fender kind of figures out that it's probably her, but just can't handle it because he's just like finally happy for once in his entire life. They kind of fall in love overnight or at least infatuated. Like they do also talk a lot and actually get along. And so without revealing it to each other, he starts to suspect she's a spy and she starts to suspect he's just a meat packer. And they're like, but now I'm actually on like a really good meat cute and I don't want it to end. And then eventually she gets caught, and then eventually he is then a criminal. Well, he tries to smuggle her out. Right, yeah. So that's how he's guilty of treason. Yeah. He tries to pay a tramp steamer or whatever to take her to the mainland. Yeah. And she's caught that way. Yeah. And so then he is guilty of treason, but like very unimportant treason. And so he's sent to the minimum security. Yeah, right. (laughs) Arrested (laughs) development He's George Bluth. Yeah. Uh, And so he's sent to this minimum security prison where he hangs out with our main character and everybody else. Yeah. There's also one other thing we learned before plot-wise he's released from jail. Walter Starbuck had a best friend named Leland Clues. Or not even a best friend, just like an acquaintance that he got along with. And just casually in the process of being interviewed by a HUAC-type committee at the Senate, House on American Activities Committee, Red Scare kind of thing, Starbuck just casually says that, yeah, before the war during the Depression, Clues was involved in communist stuff. But, you know, kind of we all were, right? And that ends up ruining Clues' career and life. And I think there's a parallel with Bob Fender because it's really interesting, actually. The nightclub singer he falls in love with sings, Je ne... Non, je ne regret rien. Which is a great Edith Piaf song we're yeah. going to talk more about. It's the one from Inception. But really the quote, the translation is, no, I don't regret anything. I regret nothing. And uh, Bob Fender sings that loudly because he's allowed to. And like the little office area where he works, he has that one record. He plays it over and over and sings along. And it's heavily implied that he means like he regretted nothing about the affair. But not even the part where he caused her to get captured? That's what I don't understand. Yeah. Think about it for a second longer. Maybe you regret that you didn't escape? Like, you could have gotten away and been with her forever. And he's like, I don't regret any aspect, including the fact that it was only eight hours long and now I'm in prison. I do not regret that. It's just an odd stance, I think. Yeah. So in the same way... It's interesting how Star Walter Starbuck, and he, we're sort of on the other end of this trend, he was speaking to the Senate at a time before communism was a word that instantly ruined you. Right. And we are just coming out of that in our lifetimes. Right. Like Bernie could say the word socialist and stand a chance in the public arena or whatever. Yeah, he's not considered a traitor. Right. So imagine yeah. the other side of that when someone's like, do you know any communists? And you're like, well, yeah, I was in the Communist Party. I'm not anymore. And uh, like these four guys. And you don't think it's going to be a problem. 
And then they're like, surprise, we hate communists now. Yeah. And the guy leading the prosecution of that is young Congressman Richard Nixon. And that helps launch Nixon's star in the world of this book and make him president, which is kind of what actually happens in the real world in life. Not that interchange. These guys. Yeah. 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 Because of that, he's never spoken to Leland again. He fears ever seeing Leland again. Leland is like his great sin in life. And all of his personal acquaintances, that's his great crime. They all think Leland was a great guy and they fucking hate his guts now. Yeah, yeah. People call him a traitor. They say, you did the only thing that would ever make me despise you. You betrayed a friend. So like his name is Mud now because of that. It's a central. He says it's the saddest thing that's ever happened or like the worst thing he's ever done. Yeah, and he's a little bit famous for this nationally, too. Like Starbucks He's a historical Clues footnote. Or, yeah, yeah, sort of like, I don't know, Alger Hiss or something. Just like names that are part of the Red Scare in actual history, they're in there. And so from there, he's released from prison. And he also crosses paths with a guy named Virgil Greathouse on the way out. Greathouse is being booked for white-collar crimes and uh, Starbucks being released. And then his plan... Virgil is- takes a pause to just shit on him, like leans it. He says, Nixon never respected you. He just felt sorry for you. And he's yeah. like, I know. <laughs> Have fun in prison. Understood. Because, <laughs> uh, yeah, Greathouse was the health, education, and welfare secretary for Nixon and a PR guy. But Walter's plan is to just kind of go to New York and try to figure out what his life is going to be. He would like to be a bartender. Yeah. That's his dream, is to become a bartender whose name is forgotten by history. And, yeah. you know, just live out his old age in fine circumstances. That's his only hope. <laughs> he says he does want to live in New York because it's his fa- it's where he's always lived. But his son lives in New York. And the other part of his fantasy is that he'll never run into his son. Or if he does, he'll just blend into the crowd until he passes by. And he has a, a fantasy that he kind of knows is bullshit too. But he has a fantasy that somewhere, someplace in New York, he'll meet someone who like respects him or like cares about him. <laughs> yeah, somewhere. like an old friend who's still thinks he's a good guy and yeah. will give him a job and an apartment. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he says his plan is to literally walk up and down the length of Manhattan until he runs into an old friend. <laughs> yeah. He's like, it's going to be like a scavenger hunt. Yeah. By the way, he's released from prison, which is the first scene of the book, arguably, roughly 30% of the way through the book. Oh, yeah. Maybe Not a lot happens that. in the book. It's very it's very internal. It's a lot yes. of just thinking yeah, yeah. and remembering stuff. And yeah. even in the process of that, he goes back on more remembering because he mentioned early on that there were four women he'd ever loved. And we've heard about his mother and about his wife, Ruth. Now he thinks about a girl named Sarah Wyatt, who ended up marrying Leland Clues. But before that, uh, Walter and Sarah went on a date and it uh, didn't go well. But he's going to go back to the hotel where they had their first date. Yeah, the Arapaho. Yeah. I also think it's important Clyde Carter, the guard, on the way out, chats with him as he takes him to the front. And he says, you know what your problem is? And I bring this up because I do think this is his defining feature as a character and his fatal flaw. Yeah. You or He goes like, whatever I say, you say, it's all right. You know, those are the last words of Carol Chessman. I guess they'll be your last words, too. And then Vonnegut says, Carol Chessman was a convicted kidnapper and rapist who spent 12 years on death row. These were indeed his last words. It's all right. And uh, I think we will prove that Walter's problem is he's fine with everything. Like, even when things cause him moral qualms, he chooses not to rock the boat. As he says, I've never risked my life or even my comfort in the service of mankind. Shame on me. Yeah, he's fine with his own. He never does evil shit. Right. And his only defense is like, well, I didn't do anything bad. And it's like, you didn't do anything good either. Yeah, yeah. That's basically his situation. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
He hitches a ride with Virgil's chauffeur, is that right? Yeah, his chauffeur is named uh, Cleveland <laughs> Laws, which is just a fun, weird, it's, like... It's a real Dwayne Hoover, Wayne Hoobler situation. Yeah, Leland Clues, Cleveland Laws. And uh, Laws talks about how they should give, uh, and it reminded me of The Simpsons, like a pretend steering wheel, like Maggie Simpson in the intro totally. the Simpsons, to like the president, whenever a new president is chosen, just like give him, you know, a, a lever with no wires connected to it and just let him goof around because no one should have any power at all. Yeah, no yeah. one should. And then Laws takes him to New York City. And uh, he also thinks back on that date with Sarah Wyatt, where he was told by his mentor, he being Walter, was told by his mentor, McCone, that he should take her out to the fanciest dinner he can at what this uh, Arapaho Hotel, which is the finest hotel in the city at that time in the 1930s. And So this is the flashback to the first time he went, right? Yeah, the first yeah. time he went, it was the nicest hotel in the city. He's taking this beautiful girl, Sarah Wyatt, to it. And he Great is... female character, by the way. Yeah, actually somebody interesting. Rare. And yeah, which is uh, some growth on Kurt's yeah. part. Good job. She's very funny and thinks sex is very silly. She And people. Yeah, people are She goofy. says to her mom, everything's just so silly and dumb. Yeah, yeah. And she's like, well, when you grow up, you'll realize everything's very serious. And she's like, I don't think I will. <laughs> <laughs> and then the date goes off the rails because... Uh, someone, co- a musician comes by to play a song for them, and then Walter is going to be very flashy and give him a $1 tip, which in the early 1930s and in the Depression is all the money in the world. I mean, this is a very George and, Costanza moment. I yeah, love this. And he accidentally gives the musician a $20 bill, which is so much money at this time in the world. And the musician like receives it, looks around, and just sprints out without his says, stuff. Yeah. Like He's like, oh, all the money, great, bye. Because you if know? you don't understand this... I could have purchased the state of Arkansas for $20 at that time. (laughs) It was a lot of money. Yeah. And then Sarah calls him a twerp, uh, an inconceivable twerp. Uh, And also, Vonnegut makes a point of twerp literally being a person who bites bubbles of their farts in a bathtub. And like at this time, it actually had a specific meaning. Okay. And I'm sorry, but I thought, didn't he previously say twerp was someone who went around with false teeth in their ass cheeks to bite the buttons off of taxi cab seats? Yeah, I thought so. So that was confusing. So now it's someone who bites their own fart bubbles in the bathtub. Yeah. And he goes... And a jerk, obviously, is someone who masturbates a lot, which I is yeah, so... Yeah, that made more sense. It makes yeah. sense, but that's not what I mean when I say jerk. I did not know that. Right. Yeah, I think he's trying to say, like, at the time it meant a thing. I guess. I think he also... I know the, dork is a whale's penis. Yeah, I know, right? I know that. <laughs> so yeah. I guess... Archaic is every is childish insult actually real? Really mean something? I get yeah, I get the sense in actual English that like every childish insult used to be a real curse word with a specific meaning. Like, so what past. is a dill hole? <laughs> I need to know. <laughs> that seventy show? Yeah, oh, yeah. There we go. Well, also, uh, yeah, I, th- I don't know. I don't know about the twerp thing changing. I, maybe Vonnegut likes to just like invent weird fetishes yeah. that are just comical to him. But the point is. He also sees it. Like, he describes, he's like, we were eating dinner with all these fucking rich assholes. Like, I looked over and there was this lady alone with a diamond necklace eating steak with a Pekingese on her lap. And the dog had a diamond necklace. Right. In the Depression. (laughs) Right. And it's in the Depression. And I was also like, yeah, this is disgusting. I'll try to be nice and give this guy a $1 tip. But because I gave him what looks like a $20 tip, she's like... You think I'm so shallow and cheap that you can, like, 
just buy just buy my love. Like you think it looks classy that you're spending that much money that you think you're so rich? Yeah. No, we're in a depression. Don't you get it, you jerk? <laughs> and he's like, yes, I do. I did that by accident. <laughs> Their whole car ride home from the date, he's just crying and weeping about this industrialist put me up to acting like this. The tip was an accident. I'm so sorry. And it kills their romantic prospects, but starts a lifelong friendship where they connect over jokes and emotional intimacy. And that's all. And then she'll go on to marry his friend instead. Well, she marries Leland Clues. Right. Yeah. yeah. Who it says was able to finally convince her that sex is not ludicrous. Right, right. <laughs> Much to her gratitude. Uh, and he says, that's something I was unable to do. But what we had in common at a core level is we both think the world's unbearably sad and we respond by making silly, silly, silly jokes. Yeah. So we're both big fans of like silly jokes. So for years on and off, we talked on the phone for hours to tell each other the latest jokes. Yeah. Because she was like a trauma nurse. So she also wanted to distract herself from horrible things she saw every day. Yeah. And throughout their later interactions, he'll say like, oh, we did this silly thing. And immediately Walter says her patient died that day. Like consistently she's yeah. coming back from tactic. her death, which is a good he, piece of writing. Turns out he continues to be very good at writing. Like oh, all throughout. Like, yeah. Like Vonnegut. Vonnegut. I mean, yeah. yeah no, great. I mean, yeah. just <laughs> without reading it, without actually reading it. You miss every – it's like I can describe how good an Arrested Development episode is to you, but you want the jokes, right. the actual jo- – so yeah, yeah. I just can't overstate how all through this, he's also writing good – he's just good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah and he, all kinds of technique on display. And because he uh, – as he after he writes this story of uh, Walter's first time at the Arapahoe Hotel in the state, then he takes us to – Walter out of jail has gone to New York and ended up at the Arapahoe because he's decided, oh, I'll just go back there, I guess. Now it's a completely run down, crappy hotel. It's staffed by a man in a tuxedo T-shirt named Israel Edel, who shows him around and gives him the one clean room in the hotel. It's only clean and nice because there was a grisly murder there recently. And so they had to redo all the wallpaper. Then Walter has a nightmare sleeping there that night that he smokes again and immediately like his whole body shrivels up and he realizes it's because Walter having quit smoking is the one thing Walter can still be proud of about himself. And so he has a nightmare about Where losing he loses, that by having a cigarette. Yeah, and he wake he has that and I think it's a meditation on how we think our lives are so complex and there's so many factors at play, but if you can stay <clears throat> present, there's fewer factors at play. <laughs> like yeah, yeah. Uh, he wakes up and he's just meditating on how you know that feeling where you think the dream was real, then you realize, oh, it was a dream. And he says, the rush of relief that went through me, there was literally, I have to pause and reflect on this, probably no one on the face of the earth that moment as happy as I was. I had so many happy chemicals flushing through my system because the dream turned out to be fake. And that's an experience people have now and again. So it's like, even though I'm this shitty old man who just got out of prison and has no prospects, a good sneeze still feels really good or like (laughs) it's cool that there's basic things that again everyone's the same the king of prussia wakes up from a dream now and then and feels the same relief when he's like oh my teeth didn't fall out good you know (laughs) yeah yeah we're all human that's you know always going to come up uh i did want to say something on the ride to new york he has a quick chat with cleveland laws who tells him about his friend who was a harvard man who was a china man His words, not mine. (laughs) Um, And he says, his daddy was a big landlord, said Laws. When the communists came, they made his daddy kneel down in front of all of his tenants in the village, and they chopped off his head with a sword. But the son could still be a communist, even after that, I said. 
He said his daddy really had been a very bad landlord, he said. Well, I said, that's Harvard for you. <laughs> <laughs> Just like that. Yeah. Too long for a blurt. Too good to skip. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so he's in New York. Uh, yeah, he wakes up at the Arapaho. So it's his first morning of like, I'm going to walk around, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. And he kind of walks around. He feels very low and then ends up in a coffee shop where people are being just staff or being kind to people. And it's another nice kindness and feeling he gets to have. And then he describes feeling so self conscious because he knows he's a convict and he expects to walk in and be treated like a convict. And again, the simple human happiness of he walks in and the waitress is like, sit anywhere you want, honey. Yeah. And he's like, it was like falling in love. Like, oh my God. When you've been in prison for a while, everything feels so good, like tiny little things. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, from there, he goes back outside. He sort of wanders to Fifth Avenue because that's where some protesters are going. And he ends up seeing Leland Clues on the street as a struggling door-to-door salesman. He also sees a shopping bag lady who he doesn't recognize, but the shopping bag lady's like, Walter Starbuck. And then Leland Clues is also like, Walter Starbuck, right before right. that. He blows by Leland Clues, obviously does not want to be seen by him, yeah. and is shocked and ashamed and appalled to see him. Immediately realizes, no, yeah, he recognizes me. Because, like, they make eye contact and he's like, oh, it's too late. Oh, he's coming over. <laughs> well, here we and, go. And uh, Leland at first points at him with that look on your face like, I know, I know you. What's your name? What's your name? And he's like, don't think of it. God, don't think <laughs> of it. But he says he's too, it's too awkward for him to leave. Again, he's just such a coward and inactive player. Yeah. Like, he's like, and I couldn't even leave. <laughs> Just like, well, we made eye contact. I guess I got to take my medicine now. Like, <laughs> as soon as he remembers who I am, of course, he's going to beat the shit out of me. Yeah. Or something. Yell at me, at least. And this bag lady is just grabbing my arm just to make this all the most more horrible. But unexpectedly, Leland is like, oh, it's Walter Starbuck. Man, my wife, Sarah, your old girlfriend, and I have been talking about for years about what I was going to say to you when I finally saw you. Thanks for sending me to jail. I'm much yeah. happier now that I'm out of the corrupt world of politics and I lead like a simple life with my wife. Yeah, and he thanks him for putting his life through a trial and putting his lo- his and Sarah's love to the test and he survived the trial and the test worked and so great, we're stronger than ever and thank you. Yes, yeah. and of course that speaks to the duality of it is existentialism at its core. You decide. Like everything shitty that's happened to you, If you are able to get your brain to perceive it as a challenge that strengthened you, then it is. If you just dwell in the past and let it drag you down, then it does. Like, it is what it is, and it is what you make it. So it just speaks to how great Leland is. Right. Because, I mean, and he literally juxtaposes him in front of, like, there's Hare Krishna dudes chanting Hare Hare and doing a drum circle behind him because it's a park in New York. Yeah. Which was crazy. I read this book. In that park. Like, I read that park oh. in that park. He in says Bryant the park, park by name, and I was in Bryant Park, yeah. Oh, no When way. I read that park. Yeah, it's a cool park. Blew yeah. my mind. But what are the odds? <laughs> I was in New York for one day, and I read that chapter in Bryant Park. Anyway. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> um, and there were Hare Krishna guys there. It was bizarre. I started looking for Mary Kathleen o- O'Looney. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> the, the bag lady will yeah. turn out to be Mary Kathleen O'Looney, who is the fourth last uh, other woman that uh, Walter has ever loved. And he's like, oh, my God, you're a bag lady now? And they knew each other back when Walter was in college working for a progressive newspaper and yeah. also being a leader of communist groups. She was the much, much more motivated member of that group. She was a true believer. She read every book he had on the topic. And whereas he is like, yes, as a Harvard man, I know a lot about government, including the communist form. And 
I think the working class have should have dignity. She was like hook, line, and sinker, like, no, we got to hand out leaflets. We got to join this shit. And so he says, I knew I was going to break up with her. Like, I knew she wasn't my future wife, but I joined the Communist Party because she thought it would be cool. I was going out with her at the time. Yeah. So she's like the true believer, and he just sort of went along with it. Yeah. But she got him into communism, basically. And then he dumped her. Uh, yeah, he yeah. wrote her a bunch of love letters saying, promising he wouldn't dump her, and then when he graduated, he dumped her, which he says, yeah, I was like a teenage asshole about it. Yeah, he says that he kind of runs around New York with her a bit, and he also remembers back when they knew each other that at one point he got confronted by Alexander Hamilton McCone, his old mentor, and he was like, yeah, I knew I was going to disappoint him. I also knew I was going to dump Mary Kathleen O'Looney, and I knew we were going to a speech by the great labor activist Kenneth Whistler, and I was in all these groups but I didn't really care about that cause that much either. I was being an asshole to all three of these things all at once. Yes, and we should talk about somewhere in there, as Vonnegut loves to reference things, somewhere in there, my wife died, he says in this. (laughs) But somewhere in there, as you just alluded to, but we haven't mentioned yet, his patron, Alexander Hamilton McCone, finds out that he's having wild hippie sex with this hippie chick and attending communist meetings and handing out communist leaflets, and comes in, oh, and he becomes like a, an editor on a communist-leaning, a left-leaning school paper. Yeah. But again, just because it's the cool college thing to do. He's yeah. more in it for the sex and drugs and stuff. <laughs> and Alexander McCone comes in and disowns him while stuttering in anger the whole time. He's not able to get words out, but he just like gesticulates, you're out of my will, fuck you. Yeah. So yeah, you're right. He's let everyone funny. down. Then in the present, he tells us again... I would have liked to not follow this crazy bag lady ex-girlfriend around, but she was grabbing my arm and everyone was looking at me like, you have to help this poor woman. Like, I'm on the street. I can't, like, rip my hand away in revulsion. Right. So I follow this bag lady around thinking, like, I'll buy her a meal and say, yeah, it was nice to run into you and get out of it as soon as possible. Yeah. Uh, Meanwhile, he says, in her giant shoes that she wears were love letters from me and a number of other documents, which will become important. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so that's she, the first drop of that foreshadowing. Yeah. And she takes him to underneath Grand Central Station where she lives. Then she takes him up to the top of the Chrysler building where there's a showroom for the American Harp Company. And the uh, owner of that showroom has had Mary Kathleen O'Looney stop by there very frequently. And, Just because he's nice and she's yeah. a homeless lady, he lets her chill in the, in the display room yeah. when there's no customers around. That's also, also where the birds are, just because you mentioned it on the cover. Yeah. The promontory Thory warblers or whatever fly around the American Harp Company offices. Yeah, and so he sees those warblers and hears their call, so another Vonnegut bird call. Yeah. And Walter also, in his previous hotel room, he had found that the drawers were full of clarinet parts. And so he uh, knows that there's somebody hunting for the people who uh, stole a bunch of clarinet parts from a Well, he doesn't, he, no, doesn't he doesn't know, know. that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, the author in the present, now knows that. But basically, he tells us in the uh, across the page, for lack of a better phrase, I found a bunch of clarinet parts in my hotel room. I would find out the next day, which is now this day at the American Harp Company, that they were hijacked from a truck and the driver was killed. So the police were actually very interested in the clarinet parts. So basically, when he walks into this place and the guy's like, 
okay, homeless lady, yes, you can go to the corner, but I told you to not bring a bunch of other homeless people here. That was your promise, and now you got this old homeless ex-convict here. And he goes, oh, uh, sir, because he doesn't want to embarrass, be embarrassed. I'm not a convict. I'm, uh, I'm looking to uh, trade a large quantity of clarinet parts. It's just the first thing that comes to mind because yeah. this just happened to him last night. And the guy's like, oh, are you? Oh, well, I can help you. That's very interesting. Hold on one second. And he calls the <laughs> cops and is like, that clarinet guy. guy is here. The yeah. murderer is here. Yeah. And then, uh, so he's thrown into uh, lockup by the police. The police also lose track of Walter and leave him without food or water or a toilet for eight hours. And then meanwhile, Mary Kathleen O'Looney is going to turn out to be Mrs. Jack Graham, the widow of Jack Graham, who is also the majority stockholder of the Ramjack Corporation, which owns... So much. We've learned throughout the book that they own everything. We also keep learning that people who have been nice to Walter throughout the book are going to be vice presidents of the Ramjack Corporation in various Are destined functions. to be. Yeah. So the suspense is not so much what will happen, but you're wondering, well, why? How does that happen? <laughs> right. And so it turns out that Mary Kathleen O'Looney gets Walter the absolute best lawyer in the country, Roy M. Cohn, or yep. at least the most skilled lawyer. He's not a great guy. Uh, uh, in the introduction, he says he actually got Roy Cohn's permission to include him as a character. Yeah. And Roy Cohn was like, well, what are you going to say about me? And he said, all I'm going to say is that you're appallingly effective no matter what side you're on. And he was like, that's fine. You can say yeah. that. Okay, good. <laughs> and yeah, he's a real asshole. And life. then after Cohn busts Walter out of the police lockup, then uh, Walter is whisked into a limo owned by the Ramjack Corporation, which goes around and picks up everyone who was nice to Walter after he got out of jail. Yes, it picks up the chef at the restaurant that served him breakfast, which is funny because why not the waitress? Because she interacted with him more. But I guess yeah. you have to be a dude to be a vice president in Ramjack. <laughs> he picks up uh, Israel Edel, yeah. who's the uh, doorman at the Arapaho, or like the desk guy, who just happened to be nice to him while they were chatting. Yeah. And, and seemed uh, like a nice guy. And they like are going to, you find out they later flew down to pick up uh, Clyde Carter from the jail and a um, few other Leland people. Clues is also yeah. there. And they sort of, by talking, it's a very funny scene. We won't get into it, but it's all the di- – like, this is also a laugh-out-loud comedy. So there's tons of payoff pun- just lines in the limo of funny shit being said because yeah. of all the farcical confusion. But what they eventually realize is you're the one who knows everyone. Everyone else is a stranger, but you have met all the people in the limo. Yeah. So there's something different about you. So what's the deal? And he goes, no, I swear to you, I don't know. And he acts like a total lunatic because he was in a padded cell for eight hours. He literally thinks he's in a dream for a long time. So he decides to say whatever he wants, like a comedy (laughs) character might in a movie. (laughs) And uh, they arrive at the house of Arpad Lean. Arpad Lean is, for all intents and purposes, the president of... Yeah, he's like the CEO type. He's the Ransom K. Fern, if you read Sirens of Titan. Yeah, yeah. So Jack Graham used to run the business... He died. Now his wife hides from the public view, only delivers messages via fingerprinted letters, the fingerprints to, so they to know it's really her. her. Yeah. And But she'll only do letters because she became this crazy recluse. We realize, oh, she became a crazy bag lady specifically. But Arpad Lean doesn't know that. And he thinks she lives in some castle far away and sends him messages that tell him how to run the business. And he's a ruthlessly good businessman, and he does whatever the letters say. Right. So he's the real president of Ramjack. And uh, he has been told by Miss Graham, a.k.a. Kathleen, because she met Walter. Oh, by the way, we should mention, 
she forgot that he was a dick who dumped her and abandoned communism because she had a bunch of shock therapy treatments that obliterated her memories. Right. So the last thing she remembers is the day he told her, I love you. And he, like a fucking asshole, doesn't remind her that actually I was a real prick to you and you don't like me. Yeah. So she loves him. She thinks he's a great guy who's really true to the communist cause, even though he's not. Yeah. So because of that, he told her the story about like, she's like, has it been hard out there on the streets? And he's like, actually, a lot of people were nice to me. I had breakfast, blah, blah, blah. So she ordered that he and all the nice people he named be made vice presidents of Ramjack. So that's right. what Arpad is doing. And that's why they're here. Yeah, and Arpad begins to think that Walter is actually really Mrs. Jack Graham. And and uh, Walter tells him, no, I'm not, but also doesn't tell him the whole truth about who Mrs. Jack Graham is. And right, then, Arpad assumes because, again, you know everyone here and no one else does. He assumes that it's Mrs. Jack Graham in drag. Yeah. And, like, literally tries to seduce her and say, <laughs> and, like, bow before her and say, it's been the privilege of my life to serve you. And he's like... Who, me? What's going on? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, but you're right. He withholds the truth that he knows yeah. that she's a crazy bag lady from him. And then the last bit before the epilogue is that Walter uh, goes back to find Mary Kathleen O'Looney and thank her. But he finds out that she got hit by a cab and is dying and then finds out a little more of her backstory about the ways she ended up being a bag lady because everyone wanted to get the person who owns Ramjack and like take their money or even cut off the hands and use those for fingerprints. Yeah, um, she became – she tried to be public at first, which is a weird side note. It says she lived lavishly like a rich person should, which I thought she was totally against. I have questions in the meat about her plan. Yeah. And I know you want to talk about that too, but – she eventually became reclusive just because she was so paranoid people would try to steal her money. Then people really did start trying to steal her money. Like people tried to chop her hands off because once she did this fingerprinting thing, they're like, oh, that's the key to controlling the Ramjack fortune if you can just get her fingerprints. So now she's a bag lady. And now she's dying. And he wants to go get an ambulance, but she says, no, I swear to God, I will die right this second if you get an ambulance. I want you to hear my last words instead. So he hears her last words. But the important plot point is that she has a will in her shoe, right. the important document aforementioned, that is that the, her real life's plan was Ramjack ruthlessly amassed as much ownership in as many companies in America and as much money as possible. When she dies, it is stated in her will that Ramjack is now owned by the American people. Each American right. citizen is an equal stockholder, however much that comes down to. Yeah. So Very she's similar to, to what Mr. Rosewater did, actually. She's <laughs> going to do a peaceful socialist revolution by just having one company buy everything and then give the company to the people. And uh, that's her plan. And uh, it turns out in the end that Ramjack only owned about 19% of everything. And so then the epilogue, we just see Ramjack being taken over by the U.S. government, but then also not helping anybody. It's just sort of becomes another cog in the economy. And Walter says that the economy is really just like the weather and businesses are not able to actually help anybody, even a business like Ramjack that's given to everybody. Right. Basically, the government uses the excuse that dividing up that many assets is such a big job that they need to assemble a government team in order to oversee the project of dividing it up. And guess what? Somehow, mysteriously, once you're done paying the lawyers' fees and infrastructure, and it's like that Simpsons where uh, the government takes their cut of the lotto winnings and they say, this money will go will partially cover a study to determine what to do with the money. <laughs> so uh, by the end, 
it's like everyone gets a check for 18 cents some one day and they're like, I wonder what this is for and throw it out. Yeah. yeah. Like that's her legacy. <laughs> and then, and Fucking yeah, the, sad. <laughs> the epilogue, we hear about that. And then there's also like a sort of ending the company going away party for Ramjack. Well, because for two years, the, all those people work as highly paid executives at Ramjack. And he, this is an important side note. Yeah. He chooses not to reveal the will for two years so that he can rake in his salary. Yeah. And or he he alludes to like I just forgot, but I'm like fucking bullshit, dude. When he and he tells our Padlene that he has access to the alive Mrs. Jack Graham. And he is lies sending, flat out. Yeah. yeah, and it turns out that by New York State law, it's a felony to hide somebody's will and, and lie so, about it as it should be. Yeah, and so Walter is going to have to go back to jail because he committed a felony hiding this will to keep the nice Ram Jack thing going for a couple more years. Yeah, so he's writing this as his last like artifact before he goes back in jail. Yeah. And I think that might be the end of the plot. And the, yeah, that's the whole plot. Oh, on a personal note, they have a going away party for him because he's going to go to jail where they play a record of him testifying, including his betrayal of Leland Clues, which is a weird thing to play <laughs> for him. Kind of like Mother Night when he sees himself projected. And his son finally comes. And the only reason it seems is because Vonnegut wants us to learn that his son has become like a bald, fat, hateful old man. <laughs> right, right. And that, like a worse dude. Than and he, he pretty, you know, he doesn't particularly like his son. Yeah. And uh, he's fine with going to prison. The end. Yeah. Did you like it? <laughs> his endings are always like, "There you go." Fuck you. <laughs> yeah, it's just kind of, I think he just says goodbye and signs it, and that's it. And then also, my copy had an index at the very end of just, like, historical figures and things, like a standard nice. index, which is uh, odd for a novel. But yeah. there's a lot of actual, like, there's a whole chunk of the book that actually just tells the story of Sacco and Vanzetti, I was, and there's I was a lot of actual say, history. That's the that. last thing I feel like we have to say is, there's a lengthy section where he says, look, the centerpiece of this book morally should really be the life of Sacco and Vanzetti. Yeah. So let's just briefly recap that. There are two Italian-American immigrants who came and immediately realized that the land that they had been promised was not everything that they had been promised. Yeah. There were opportunities, but there was also already a ton of racism, and like the system was already stacked against them. They were treated like cattle at Ellis Island. As soon as they landed, people are shouting racial epithets at them, like tea partiers, the equivalent of that time, were already like, get out of this country. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, we were told to come here because of the opportunities. And they're like, fuck off. <laughs> so they go door to door begging for work, not begging, but begging for work. They eventually get jobs. They, as, as industrious people, become moderate successes, not wealthy by any stand. But I mean, they become workers and connected to the working people of the city. Yeah. They uh, start to realize, oh, unions are a thing that's coming into fruition. We want to be a part of that. They become union leaders. They fight for the rights of workers. All these basic things that now 100% of Americans would all agree with, 100%. Like, oh, you can't have a kid work 90 hours in the press. <laughs> like, they yeah. keep dying. Basic shit. Yeah. Like, Weekends. oh, yeah. there should be a minimum wage of some kind, whatever it's set at, it should right. exist. Right. Um, there should be a limit to how many hours we can work in a row, et cetera. And of course, when this, as we all know historically, when unions were first coming together, the country for a while was like, what? No, no. Railroad tycoons own everything. No, that's the way <laughs> it should be. Right. Like we had a tycoon system and we're going back to it arguably. Yeah. So it was straight up like, you know, the National Guard would come shoot a bunch of your people or whatever. So they were eventually arrested on trumped-up murder charges, convicted, executed in the electric chair. Their coffins were put on display, and a banner was hung over them 
literally with a quote of what the judge said that to a friend the day after he convicted them of the crime, which was yeah. he said, did you see what I did to those anarchist bastards the other day? Yeah. And this is on record that he said during the trial to the jurors, or maybe he made the decision. I think he made the decision himself. But as part of his public statement, the judge said, whether or not they committed the murders, they deserve to be executed because... They're just enemies of our social institutions. Yeah. Our social institutions are capitalism, and they're against that, so we have a right to treat them as enemy combatants and execute them. It doesn't matter whether they committed the crime or not. That's just insane. A judge can't say that, Yeah, obviously, now. And, so. and a third guy confessed to the murders that Later, happened. of course. And then so instead of letting Sacco and Vanzetti off, they just executed all three guys. The two of them and another guy all died. So it was a lynching of two anarchists to try and put down communism. Right. And it was part, it worked. Like it was part of the attempt to crush communism in this country. And communism has been a filthy word for a long time. And hopefully it's not in the future. Because here's the thing. A lot of communist regimes turn into horrible tyranny. No one's arguing that. Communism might not work out in the long run. But that doesn't mean there aren't humanitarian ideas within it that are laudable. And there aren't systems, we have socialist systems in this country that are cherished institutions. So he's just saying, you know, Jesus died on the mount next to two criminals. Yeah. Here are two innocent men who died with a criminal. And like, we should treat it the same way. They were martyrs too. Yeah, he can see whether or not it becomes the way we operate all of society. It has morals and ideas that are worth considering and working into the overall system. Yeah. And it's crazy that they're completely unknown guys who represent it so well. And that's why I think it's crazy that people call Kurt ever like leftist propaganda. I mean, read Killing Lincoln by Bill O'Reilly or something. <laughs> that is like, we are right. Do not think about the other side's argument. Do not look at the other side's argument. Yeah. Kurt always says... Like the last time he said, I don't know what should have happened with Biafra. I'm just saying it's sad when children are slaughtered. I think we can all agree. (laughs) And in this, he's just saying, I'm just saying communists that I knew from my childhood were saying things like, all the rich people should willingly give a small portion of money to the poorest people just because like Jesus would want us to. And he's like, I'm just saying that seems nice. I'm not saying I support this or that political institution. I just think Nixon's not doing a great job and communism's not as evil as everyone's saying it is, which is (laughs) a pretty conservative statement. (laughs) Well, And also he's saying that there were past movements like People's Pouring Sock on Vanzetti, the Socialist Party that Powers Halfgood was in. Yeah. Uh, There was even, I think it was called Social Justice or Christian Socialism. Like there were movements tying directly socialism into Christianity and saying these messages match. It's what Jesus would do. If you're a Christian, you would do the economy this way. If you do the economy this way, it's Christian. Like, there's justice to that, and there's positives to that. And he's saying that those people are mostly forgotten, quote-unquote, now, when he wrote this in the 70s, and even today, forgotten, too. But maybe he's trying to build that legend and give heroes of the working class for people to look up to. Yeah, uh, so that's sort of the the John Henry pantheon. Yeah, yeah. And so that so this book it has an index because it's heavy on history because cool. he's trying to pull all that into Mine it. didn't, but that's awesome. Mine had lots of typos yeah. too. The digital version got, is poorly transcribed. I recommend getting a hard copy. Yeah, and I got a real cheap used very old one that might be like an early edition of it. It's got like the Delacorte thing on it and everything. Nice. So hey, who knows? Yeah. Well, that's our story. I think so. Uh, I yeah. think we're free to segment it up. Yeah, I think we can go into another segment called Kurt Blurt. Bloop, bloop. Bleep, bloop, 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 blo
Yeah. Do you want to do that segment intro now that we're through our intestinal trouble and everything? <laughs> sure. If you've never heard the show, this is where we pick out particularly choice lines and quotes from the book. I think we've done a, a, a many of them already, but uh, there's a few more uh, lines that jump out to me as being particularly great in here. I told you that we would have that this episode wouldn't be long because there are fewer blurts than usual. And then I finished going through the book, and I have 37. So I'm sorry. Literally 37? Literally 37. <laughs> I'll either just skip a ton. I don't know what I'll do. I don't know what to do. But you go first. <laughs> yeah. Why not? Maybe I'll cover some. Uh, yeah, exactly. You'll eliminate mine. In, in that prologue where he's reading, uh, uh, Vonnegut is reading a letter from his fan, John Figler. Figler says that he figured out a summary of all Kurt Vonnegut books, which is, love may fail, but courtesy will prevail. That's the whole thing. And then Kurt says, oh, I could have written a telegram instead of all these novels. That would have been easier to do, which is like a funny bit. But it's also a nice little encapsulation of all his work. Love may fail, but courtesy will prevail. Absolutely. I raised my quality bar, and now I'm quickly deleting a bunch, so... Yeah, we can. Well, people can uh, bug you on social or something. No, people if they wanna, should wanna read the book. Is my point, I guess. But like, <laughs> and I would still say I usually have more than thirty-seven. I would still say this is not as many as usual. But there's just so yeah. many great quotes. So I guess I'm cutting a bunch of the ones that are great jokes because we really want like the big life-changing messages. But yeah. man, there are so many lines that would just be funny in a Seinfeld episode or funny, you know, yeah. in an episode. Or super of meaningful. Or, well, we could also pick out, because we picked out with going into slapstick, we had kind of found in, in Kurt's own writing and speeches that he was mentally shifting gears a bit. He wanted to try sort of a slightly different style of writing. I think starting in slapstick and continuing here, he's much more writing blocks of prose rather than sort of the punchy cat's cradle sort of and thing. And plot-driven more. The plot is more concrete, yeah. I would say. And, and there's no drawings for a while. He abandons that. And I think in this book, he I, I didn't think he found it as much in slapstick, but in this book, he finds a way to have those punchy, blurdy things within his much more prose and plot-driven kind of writing, which is really amazing. That's a really hard balance to strike. True. And he actually gives some of the characters some of the funny punchlines in dialogue, which he used yeah. to hog all for the narrator, would say right. all the funniest <laughs> stuff. Yeah. That's why I think we'll do movie time for this, because this one actually has really punchy dialogue that actors yeah. would love to get to do. And yeah. a plot that plays. And yeah. Um, this one definitely we will say, so I don't feel like I'm wasting your time. I still believe that peace and plenty and happiness can be worked out some way. I am a fool. <laughs> yeah. Another, like, I think that encapsulates his work just as well as the previous quote. Yeah. That's also the core of, that's the beating heart of everything that Kurt has written. And I think it also speaks to what you were saying about how this doesn't quite qualify as propaganda because he's so questioning of his own ideas. Right. <laughs> like, how <laughs> can you say something's propaganda when they're filled with self-doubt like that? Right. <laughs> I just don't get that. I really like a line of, I think you, you mentioned that he writes the character of Sarah really well. And that's like, oh, it's a solid fictional character. I think he also gives a lot of good stuff to Ruth in this book. Ruth is the wisest character in the book. And I have the most blurts are things Ruth said. Yeah. yeah. And I like one toast she gives at one point is, here's to God Almighty, the laziest man in town. Yeah. Killer. Great. Um, she also says, well, it's said of her, and I have to bring it up because it reminded me so much of Chrono from the End of Sirens of Titan after the prison camps. She was uninterested in ever trusting anybody with her destiny anymore. Her plan was to roam alone and out of doors forever, from nowhere to nowhere, in a demented sort of religious ecstasy. No one ever touches me, she said, and I never touch anyone. I am like a bird in flight. It is so beautiful. There is only God and me. Yeah. 
She's like a bird, she'll only fly away. Uh, and he says later of her, she believed and was entitled to believe, I must say, I must say, that all human beings were evil by nature, whether tormentors or victims or idle standers by. And I bring that up because in the meat, I am going to posit that there's a lot of symbolic work in this book to show that there is a recurring theme of the Trinity and there are three approaches to life. You can oppress others, be a victim of oppression, or be neutral, which is also evil. And those are all the options. There's no fourth option where everything's good. There's only three shitty options. I think Ruth Ruth says it explicitly, but I'll bring up other symbols that I think echo that later on. Yeah, let's let's run through yeah, the blurt. That's all the Ruth stuff for yeah. me. Yeah, there's another one where it's later in the book, and Walter is thinking about his own approach to New York and how he's kind of running, taking himself to the Hotel Arapaho and also running into people he knows. And the blurt is: No American is so old and poor and friendless that he cannot make a collection of some of the most exquisite little ironies in town. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, he later says, "I think." And I made a mistake irony collectors often make. I tried to share it with someone. This cannot be done. Yeah. yeah like he yeah, tells yeah. the guy, you know, 40 years ago I was here and this restaurant was nice. And he's like, all right, like, who yeah, cares? Sure. Right. <laughs> I'm sure it was. <laughs> Which is definitely a feeling I've had occasionally to like see yeah. personal stories. Of yeah. Like, you know, this used to be a summer camp and they're like, fine. I, okay. It just, now it's a hotel. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> all right. There's also, it's not even, I don't know if it even qualifies as a blurt, but when Sarah is yelling at Walter on their date in the past, she uses the phrase dumb toot. We're just again very excited about it. It was used in another, uh, I forget the name of the story, but it's the story about sexism that he had in Welcome to the Monkey House. She yeah. also says, you old dumb toot. That's what you are, just a dumb toot. Um, I don't think we have to guess at the meaning of toot. That's still the same meaning, I yeah. think. I was wrong. I do have more Ruth's. Another Ruth is, uh, she says, I am not one of those people, Walter, who finds it necessary to always know, supposedly, what is really going on. Yeah. I think that's something Vonnegut yeah, that was a great one. has trouble with. Are we supposed to want to know the meaning of life? Is there a meaning of life that can be concretely known? Or are yeah. we supposed to ignore it and not try to think about it? <laughs> <laughs> there's um, there's also, there's a lot of blurts in this about sort of the economy and just sort of, a lot, uh, he did this a lot in Breakfast of Champions and also God bless you, Mr. Rosewater, but just really pointedly breaking down just how the economy works. And when Walter is looking at the bag of lady who will turn out to be Mary Kathleen O'Looney, he says, ragged regiments of them, bag ladies, had been produced accidentally and to no imaginable purpose by the great engine of the economy. And then he goes on to say about it in terms of the economy making all kinds of people like 10-year-old murderers and dope fiends and child batters. The quote is, people claim to be investigating. Unspecified repairs were to be made at some future time. And it's just yeah, a very detached great. sort of description of how people are like, we're going to fix this. Yeah. Anyway, just make sure to reelect me and we'll deal with it later. You know? <laughs> yes. I do believe I have now narrowed it down to only fucking awesome stuff. So I'm going yeah. to keep all the rest if I may. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, I was just talking about, I was just talking about what's really going on. She says, I don't feel the need to. And I have a whole collection of those. These are all from different points in the book, but different characters say... I don't feel the need to know what's going on. I don't think anybody understands what's going on. And then he says to that person, some people must know what's going on. I said, I no longer believe that, then says the narrator. Someone later says, but you know, nobody who's doing well in the economy ever wonders what's really going on. We are chimpanzees. We are orangutans. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, Mary Kathleen, as a bag lady, says, how can I make sensible plans if I don't know what's going on? And he says, you can't. 
and no one knows what's going on. So you can't make sensible plans by definition. I just love that if you put that all together, it's basically the old line, how do you make God laugh? Make plans. Oh, yeah, yeah, Life right. is an endless cavalcade of you don't know what's going on, and you try to make plans based on what you think is going on. <laughs> of course, everything ends up being a ridiculous farce. Like, it, life is that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. It's just the way it is. <laughs> I think I, I think I have like four more, which may be uh, very few, but maybe I go through some nice. of those and then it'll. No, cover I'll do it. my I'll do my rapid fire at the yeah. end that I like to do. <laughs> uh, it's just one stray line when he's talking about harps because they go to the American Harp Company and he calls harps impossible marriages between Greek columns and Leonardo da Vinci's flying machines. Which, That's awesome. Uh, you you harpists out there, which I assume is I don't know ninety ninety five percent of the audience. Uh, <laughs> what a what lovely description of your your instrument. He also talks about Mary Kathleen O'Looney being someone who truly cares about the books that Walter has. She talks about them being like the best books for the smartest people at the best school, et cetera. And he says that she read them the way a young cannibal might eat the hearts of brave old enemies. Their magic would become hers. It's just a really cool uh, character moment there. There's also a really funny line when Walter is being confronted by Alexander Hamilton McCone right after he had sex with Mary Kathleen O'Looney as a young man and has just been kind of burst in on, and he's talking about the situation being okay because I remained calm. Such was the magic of having emptied my seminal vesicles so recently. Yeah. <laughs> just a really funny... He is able to stand up to his father thing. figure because he just jizzed. Yeah. <laughs> he's yeah. like, I'm pretty calm. Yeah, just being very direct and action hero about yeah. it, like, I'll be okay. I emptied them. Yeah. <laughs> And then in the epilogue of the book, he's talking about how Ramjack being dismantled didn't actually end up helping anyone. It just wasn't big enough. But also, quote, the economy is a thoughtless weather system and nothing more. Some joke on the people to give them such a thing. Yeah, like the idea that the economy is a discussion we ever have in relation to the president. The president does not control the economy. Oh, yeah, not at all. It's a fake steering wheel. It's very difficult to blame a single person for anything thing that happens in the economy it's foolish it's like it's as complex as the earth's weather system it's perfectly apt analogy yeah and the things that happen are because of literally millions of factors that historians argue about as the centuries unfold yeah Um, (laughs) all right rapid fire with just some good zingers I am now moved to suppose with my primitive understanding of economics that every successful form of government is of necessity a Ponzi scheme and what he means by that is the basic precept of a Ponzi scheme or pyramid scheme is the way you are pretending that you're successful is by always recruiting new members who pay their initial dues. And as soon as membership falls off, everything falls apart. That's also kind of how human organizations work with like investment of individual belief and resources. And as soon as you stop expanding, you're dying. Uh, So I thought that was cool. His description of why you shouldn't be scared of communists or he says, when I hear meet a communist and hear their ideas, it doesn't seem like an evil, slimy, like monster who's trying to destroy our values. It just seems like common sense on the part of a good person from an alternate universe. Like their society's needs are different, so they came to a different conclusion. But like, there's nothing evil about them. Everyone wants everything to be fine. And that reminded me of Kronos and Classic Infundibula, points in space where everyone is right at the same time, even though they disagree. Yeah, right. He says, this is just a great point about body shaming in general. Body sizes can be remarkable for their variations from accepted norms, but still explain nothing about the lives being led inside those bodies. Yeah. Which is great. 
I did think it was a misstep that he makes Ruth become f- hugely fat for no reason and like harps on it. And not the first time he's just taken a female character and blown out their weight. Yeah, just made to do his it. wife become like a yeah. fat, doddering fool. This is about the clarinets. Thus, I discovered that the bottom drawer contained seven incomplete clarinets without cases, mouthpieces, or bells. Life is like that sometimes. <laughs> it's funny. This is what I thought was actually a terrible writing maneuver. Oh. Did you notice he says... Sounds like it's not a blurt. When he meets Leland, he says, Corning right at me was the husk of the man who had once been Leland Clues. Oh, I missed that. Get it? I Corn guess. and husk? Yeah, Stupid. Don't do yeah. that, Kurt. That's dumb. Yeah, it's an anti-blurt. On this particular planet, where money mattered more than anything, the nicest person imaginable might suddenly get the idea of wringing her neck so that their loved ones would live in comfort. It would be the work of a moment and easily forgotten. Time flies. That's about how many people wanted to kill Mary Kathleen and chop off her hands. (laughs) He says to her while she's dying, I said of life in general that it probably was worth it, but that it did seem to go on a little long. (laughs) He also says, might wisdom be as impossible in this universe as a perpetual motion machine? Scary question. A prayer he likes is, dear Lord, never put me in the charge of a frightened human being. Very good. Yeah. And then we mentioned Mary Kathleen's dying words, which are, I've done everything I can to make it better for everybody, but there probably isn't that much anybody can do. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. (laughs) Bummer. And to pull us out of that, my final blurt to prove how funny the book is, and you really should read it just for the jokes. When our Padlene thinks he is in drag and is trying to seduce him and calls him into his office, this is how that plays out. Come into my parlor, he murmured, (laughs) said the spider to the fly. He winked at me broadly. I hated this. (laughs) Sir, I said... I don't know what's going on. I will tell you something strange, he said. I won't understand it, I said. You were in prison, you say, he said. It happens, I said. <laughs> like, that's just killer dialogue. Right. It's very punchy. Like an anti-seduction kind <laughs> yeah, of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And just the line, I hated this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's and so blurred. It's spent. Uh, Yeah, it's much, uh, much loaded with blurts. It's great. And I think we can go, because you uh, teased it before, and it's, it's, I think it's going to be really interesting. Let's get into a next segment called The Meat. Chop-a-dee, oh, chop-a-dee, we chop-a-dee. got a lot of meat sizzling, sizzling oh. in the pan. Smoky yeah. to smell that. Oh, I love cooking. Rendered fat. Mmm. I think we have more meat than usual. <laughs> or at least more meaningful meat. Oh, I yeah. get it. Yeah, well, especially this being, again, a book about capitalism, labor, Christianity, and America all at yes. once. There's quite a bit. So, yeah, so the first thing I wanted to bring up just as a blow-your-mind thing or that I thought was really cool is I do really think the book lays out these three paths. Victimhood, meaning you get screwed over by the serendipitousness of life. Oppressorhood, meaning you are a victor in life, your life goes well. And as part of your life going well and you having a lot of privilege, you have to realize people are oppressed by that. Like there's yeah. a limited amount of joy and resources. So if your life goes well, you are by definition an oppressor in some way. And I think almost everybody's done that thought experiment one way or another at some point, just thinking like, oh, yeah, I guess technically right. there's this other country or continent where everyone's starving or there's a civil war. And, and if you start I'm to... I'm eating lunch and not helping. Right. If you start to impart dignity to animals, it gets even crazier. You're like, every yeah. day of my life consumes X amount of life force from the earth. Right, yeah, Other yeah. things have to die or not be born for me yeah. to live every day. It's the, fine. The joy of me having my first <laughs> child, like, expands my carbon footprint exactly. exponentially. Yeah. Yeah. Everything is that. <laughs> 
um, or indifference. And I think, as George Orwell said, you know, indifference to evil is just as evil as evil. Yeah, that's a fascinating way to break it down, man. Like, yeah. yeah, like like that trinity of and ways thi- to live. The none things of which that made me great. feel that way are, like I said, the guy says mockingly of him, "You're going to say it's all right always." He joins communism because his girlfriend told him to. He ruins his friend Leland Clues without meaning to. He goes to jail for Watergate, even though he had nothing to do with Watergate, because his wife just died when they accuse him of a crime. He's like, okay, I did it. Like, he just doesn't care, so he goes to jail. (laughs) Then they say later on, Salcedo. They say that later, the way Salcedo's life ends, the Ponzi scheme guy, is government agents. DeSanza or something? I'm sorry, DeSanza? Yeah, like Carlos. Salcedo DeSanza? I don't know. I think it's Carlo DeSanza? Well, I wrote Salcedo, so it's probably a different character. Okay. There's a character named Salcedo who is minor, like he just tells an anecdote. But the anecdote he tells is he met with some government agents, and then he either fell, jumped, or was pushed out of the window, and that's the end of that story. Oh, I think, is, isn't that from the actual Sacco and Vanzetti history? Like, they, they wanted to organize a meeting because a friend of theirs had been had killed been, by, had died in and captivity. And so they yeah. were like, we're going to have a meeting to do activism for this guy. And then they were arrested before they even got to well, the meeting. Well, I'm probably reading into it too much. But yeah. fell, meaning nature is indifferent to you. You fell randomly. Oh, okay. Jumped. Yeah. You, are, you took life in your own hands and made an action that would martyr you and help your cause. Or your victimhood, you were pushed. Okay. And then again, with the fact that the main character's name is Starbuck, the only other Starbuck that Vonnegut would have been aware of pre-Battlestar is um, Starbuck, the character from Moby Dick, whose function in Moby Dick is to be the guy who, through narration, tells you, I know the captain's crazy. This is so crazy. Yeah. We should turn back. We shouldn't chase the whale. But he <laughs> never is able to convince others or form a mutiny, and he never tells Ahab, you really got to stop, man. Like, he never. Oh, yeah. So this main character, I argue, is part of the problem, and Vonnegut is saying that part of the problem is indifference. Yeah. Like, it kind of is a tirade against slacktivism. Or like... How did Sacco and Vanzetti get fucking lynched by the government and people aren't rioting? Like, it's, right. it's that. He's like, this is how it happens. It's not just the people who oppress you. It's the people who are like, I guess, and just are complicit in the system, perpetuating the system. Yeah. But, and he also, I think he, until the very end of the book, doesn't make Starbuck a redeeming or likable character. And then I think the first good actual act he does is to hide the will of Mary Kathleen O'Looney and yeah. to keep Ramjack going for like another couple years just like everybody keeps getting to have a job and keeps getting to have this nice thing like for a brief window that's like probably the redemption moment that's the first moment where it's like oh now he's a hero but he's it's finally still a sh- actually done I something. would say it's a tainted redemption because it's still like yeah well by doing that you were delaying what were her wishes and her wishes were generous so yeah. you're cock-blocking love rays from getting out of this woman's shoes? <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. Like, her wishes aren't going to work out, but yeah, but he, he is, like, helping that. the people It has to him. just be because he wants a job. Like, I don't see an interpretation where it's not self-serving. I guess so. Yeah. I also, I don't know if people at this time felt differently about the importance of fatherhood, but he is such a shitty father. Yeah. And I judge him for that. Maybe I'm not, like, maybe in the 50s and 60s, being a distant shitty father is not even a character flaw, <laughs> but it is to me. I think he sucks for that reason. He yeah. never even tries to make peace with his son or see his son's point of view. And he, he, the author controlling the universe, makes his son a book reviewer for the New York Times, which we already know Kurt Vonnegut thinks is like 
a shitty craven profession to be a book reviewer. <laughs> right. He doesn't like critics, so at best they're harmless, but at worst they're garbage. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so just I want I had to express how much I hate him, and I think he falls in the indifference category. Yeah, that's was the big takeaway for me. What did you think was I, the purpose of her plan, and then her plan not working? Because that's obviously one of the major points, and I don't fully know what I feel about it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's sort of like how in Sirens of Titan, he'll explore like, oh, maybe this religion could fix everything, or with God bless you, Mr. Rosewater, like there's a ridiculous version of permanent philanthropy fixing everything in some way. This was like his attempt to actually work out like, oh, what if we had a peaceful socialist revolution within the system through this specific approach of building one giant company? But why like, does he have to say it wouldn't work? That's such a downer. Because I think he thinks it wouldn't work. He I thinks think, it wouldn't work? <laughs> yeah. Like, I think, he, I think he wanted to, like he has in some other books, maximize his ideals and his hopes into one thing and then have it smack into a realistic failing. Yeah. God, it hurts, though. Yeah. Because it's but like, I, you made this world. You could have had it work. Well, he also, he's like, well, it was a thought experiment, the end of which is I don't think it would work. <laughs> but so. I also think he undercuts its failure a little bit with the way that Mary Kathleen O'Looney is hit by a cab out of nowhere, and sort of her plans are short-circuited a bit, and she dies relatively young. And he also makes very specific that Ramjack just didn't own enough of the country to do it. But maybe if sure. it did own enough, it could. You know? Who knows? And as usual, I think we find our redemption in, like Leland Clues forgave me. Yeah. So on an individual human to human level, there can be moments of transcendental kindness and forgiving. Yeah. And like people can cut each other so much slack that it's like, well, if everyone acted like that, society would be fixed. So he can't escape the idea that there is hope. And yet the fact that there is hope is almost a torture. Like you wish there wasn't hope and you could be one of these people. I know a lot of these people who say, you know, human nature's fucked, both all political parties suck, and right. it will never get better because that's how shitty humans are. This is the best we can function. And he's saying, but I meet these people, on, and like, there are people who are kind souls, a lot of them. A lot of people out there are very good people yeah. who at the very least are courteous to even strangers that they have no reason to help. Can't we all just do that? And it's like... Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. there's all these reasons why it doesn't work out. So he's trapped in the limbo, and I think he draws us into this limbo of, God, you want to hope and hope and hope, but you are also constantly telling yourself, like, don't get excited. You know all the reasons that you shouldn't really hope that hope. <laughs> like, you're yeah, smart you enough to know how fucked we are because you've seen the firebombing of Dresden and shit. Yeah. Well, and also, and in terms of meaning and hope and, and what things to live by, I feel like this book is in a sneaky way sort of part of a mini trilogy he made about Christianity. If you combine this with Palm Sunday and then also the gospel from outer space bit of Slaughterhouse-Five, I think that's sort of a set of three stories that spells out everything he feels about Christianity and the historical figure Jesus and how much you can lean on that or not in life as kind of a basic FOMA to rely upon. Because he's someone who is a humanist and doesn't believe in Christianity, but is like a huge Jesus fan. Yeah. And he just thinks that's a real Jesus. solid philosopher and a good guy to know the precepts of. And so it's sort of... I, I want to see Kurt Vonnegut at the pearly gates. And Jesus is like, we were watching. We know you don't believe. Only believers can enter the kingdom of heaven. He's like, I was a big fan, though. <laughs> big fan. That doesn't count. No? All right. 
Well, also, as we talk about him being a fan, I'm imagining him like when Homer's on the couch with a pennant sometimes watching TV. It like, just says like, Jesus. Like Kurt yeah. with a Jesus pennant just yeah. watching the world. Yeah. yeah, although it also obviously highly resonates with God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater. So you could consider it a spiritual cousin to that. Yeah, that too. Oh, and I thought something interesting occurred to me that's purely a structural thing, but he's obsessed with death. He's obsessed with, and he's had in several books, tombstones. Yeah. And I think he decided, he, again, Marvel Ultimates, he wants to do the same thing, but in a different way. There are so many people's last words in this. You get the last words of th- four condemned killers, yeah, or falsely condemned in some cases, four executed people. You get Mary Kathleen's last words. A bunch of people's last words are, like, important. They're dying words. So I don't know what it means necessarily. I don't want to spend a ton of time on it. But he converted tombstones into last words. And I also felt like plot-wise, this was very much The Force Awakens. In the sense that it's repeating past stuff? Yes. So, like... The twist ending is all the money gets given away to the people, all of Mr. Rosewater. Yeah. There's a character who becomes ecstatically, religiously a bird, thinks of herself as a bird, a la Sirens of Titan. Oh. Like, there's so many individual, Yeah. and I, I won't go through them all, but there's many scenes that resonate very much that way. I think the trend is continuing. I think what he said in Breakfast of Champions is true. It feels like a different leg of his journey. Yeah. A- everything then- after breakfast. And, and speaking of things repeating and being, mm-hmm. I think that's a good bridge into another segment called Recurring Characters Update. Oh, they're coming back. Oh, they're going to be they deep inside your heart Here when you meet these three characters. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Is there three this time? Are there I think, three? I ended up, I, I added one more little thing before we, yeah, it's oh, okay. it, like, uh, as Kurt had promised in Breakfast of Champions, he freed his characters then. And this segment where we kind of see who's recurring, he does tell you right at the beginning that he is breaking the promise with Kilgore Trout. But I think very minimally, Kilgore Trout's not a character in it. It's a pen name of another guy who is Who acts original. differently. Yeah, that's yeah. true. But Trout will also keep coming up in future novels, especially Galapagos and Timequake. So the, the trend continues. And he's also in a bunch of other Kurt books that we've talked about. And then beyond that, it's kind of Easter eggy in terms of what's recurring. There's another bird call this time. It's the Prothonotary Warbler. And that's just how I'm going to pronounce that. I'm just going to go with it. Yep. Uh, but that's an actual, like, East Coast bird. It's an actual yeah. singing bird. Thing. But it's in the same way, it's great going through his whole work and realizing, like, oh, he has proclivities. <laughs> like, yeah, birds. Yeah, yeah. Like, Warhol liked mass-produced toys, and that was part of his art always. He likes bird calls. He likes tombstones. He likes last words. Yeah. He likes some... Jokes. He likes... Burying a giant tragic event in the phrase somewhere in there. <laughs> somewhere in there, the Holocaust happened. Right. Like, or my wife died yeah. or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I feel like when we're done with this, we need to both write a ch- short story in the style of Vonnegut. Oh, wow. Because I feel like that I would be could funded, now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're, ga- we're gaining his powers. Exactly. We're like Mary Kathleen O'Looney eating the brains of the books. One yeah. of the great points he makes is reading is one of the most divine forms of meditation because no matter what your life experience has been, if you read it seriously, you're thinking with the mind of that person. You're yeah. communing with their spirit in a very real way. Your neuropathways follow the same pattern theirs did when they had the thought, and you are having that thought. Yeah. So books just rule that way. Really I do cool. feel like I'm channeling Kurt Vonnegut now because I've been reading so much. <laughs> yeah, me too, me too a bit, yeah. yeah. And with the with the bird calls, there's a whippoorwill and slapstick. Uh, Elgin Washington does an impression of a nightingale in Breakfast of Champions, and then there's weed and multiple other books before that as a bird call. So yeah, he's like building out a, a Audubon kind of thing throughout his yes. novels as he goes. And then also uh, the phrase ting-a-ling is in this book. That's also going to be in Timequake. And then the last one is the Ramjack Corporation 
is central to this book. His next novel, Dead-Eyed Dick, has a joke copyright for the Ramjack Corporation. Like, if you look in oh, the nice. front of Dead-Eyed Dick, it's copyright it's 1982, the Ramjack, Ramjack Corporation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which, I don't know how you quite do that legally, but apparently yeah. he did it. Worked out great. About those warblers, also he mentions, like we said in the cover of your edition, they live in the Harp company offices. Yeah. And I immediately thought, where's all the shit go? And later he says, and I know what you're thinking, where's all the shit go? <laughs> they put out little teacups, and it's the only bird on the face of the earth, this is just such a cool fact, that is potty trained. They only <laughs> shit in the cups. And that's because in nature, they exclusively shit in the nests of other birds. I'm like, that is a fucking yeah. dick move. <laughs> they use Nature's as their cool. toilet your baby's bedroom. Yeah. That's like what they do as a bird species. <laughs> What a terrible type of bird. Right. It's not even that other species that like kicks birds out of a nest or something. It's just pooing on them no, and moving on. They want you. You can keep living there. I just want to <laughs> shit on your kid's head. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, and that's what recurs. And we can also uh, quickly do another segment called Kurt Cameo. Kurt, Guess Kurt, who's Kurt. back? This theme song. I've done it. It is great. Once before. It is great. It, it is, is great. great. Oh, yeah, yeah. good. And say hello. <laughs> this is where we look at Kurt directly appearing in the book. Obviously, he's himself in the prologue. Walter Starbucks, probably his mouthpiece throughout the book. And in particular, in Kurt's life, this same year of 1979, when he put out the book, he married his second wife, Jill Kremens. They had moved to Long Island, but also Manhattan had been where Kurt went after his first marriage fell apart, after his kids grew up, and when he was trying to like dabble in plays and figure out what his life is going to be. So I feel like there's really strong parallels with Walter Starbuck wandering to Manhattan after jail and Kurt wandering to Manhattan after, you know, sea changes in life. So it's super direct. Like some of these yeah. books, you really have to <laughs> dig for it, but this one, he's literally in Not it and all. So there's yeah. life stuff. Yeah. So that's that. Let's go straight on to another uh, chunk of the show called Vana What? Finally, I got a bone to pick with this mother butcher. By the way, I noticed Tingling Motherfucker is not in this one. Do you know which one that's from? It's got got to be Tenquake then, I think. Okay. Because yeah. uh, Tingling was introduced in this, and I see the Kurt Vonnegut Twitter often tweet, because it's a funny quote, Tingling, motherfucker. <laughs> so I'm like, well, he's going to say that at some point, but it's not yet. It's coming in the time. Coming up. And in Vana What, if you've never heard the show, this is where we pick out things that may be offensive, problematic, uh, not necessarily morally judging them, but just things we bumped on as we uh, read through this novel written by a guy in the 1970s. There you go. Yeah. 70s. So it's getting later in time. Right. They're it's- less... They're less, less forgivable as it gets. Right. When we get to the mid-80s, if he's still like homophobic, I'm going to be like, come on, man. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Well, I also, other than we picked out how he just opted to make Ruth get fat. I wish he wouldn't do that with and characters. Like, like yeah. he did with uh, Describes her as like comically fat. She weighed 160 pounds. I'm like, that's not even that fat. Yeah. Like it's not. Yeah. And because he like, he did that in Slaughterhouse-Five with uh, uh, Billy Pilgrim's wife and, and occasionally in other books too. And it, do- it doesn't seem particularly necessary. Nah. And I don't know why he's hung up on it. Yeah. But, you know, who knows? And again, being mean to Ruth, but I think this might be the main character's fault and the point, but you could say I was her inferior. Oh, what a charmer she was. Of course, I got the credit for how smoothly things ran. It's like, we'll give her credit if you know she's better than you. (laughs) Yeah. And she would give birth to a son by and by, a very unpleasant person. Sorry, when they come out, they're not immediately (laughs) unpleasant people. Like, 
you're part of why he turned out that way. <laughs> right. It's just uh, a, jerk a very baby. unpleasant person who, as I've already said, is now a book reviewer. <laughs> it's just <Yeah>. like <laughs> shitting on your own newborn son. Yeah. He also says, uh, Ruth once said, because remember, she's from concentration camps. She's so full of pain and sadness. If I had a baby, it would come out a monster, she said. And it came to pass. <laughs> and it's like, maybe you it's were a just a bad off, father. Man. Jesus. Yeah, show up. Beyond that, I didn't have a, like a ton in this one. I feel like it's very uh, charitable toward most people. And like uh, most of the evil is on the part of the protagonist or on just like openly bad people. That's true. Like there's a character who thinks she's a real white knight to her servants and like only lives to keep her ser- like, and it's like, fuck you. They again, yeah. like Vera's slaves, like release your slaves. They'll figure it out. Right. But again, slavery. these are prescribed to the characters. So it's not his fault. There are a couple I think are his fault yeah, that I'll call okay. out. Yeah. I had never befriended any Chinese, which I have to say it that way. Like, I can only imagine a racist grandpa. Like, I don't like them Chinese with yeah. the hard S at the end. That's how you say that. <laughs> of the guy who takes the $20 tip, he says, being a gypsy, mm. he grabbed the money and darted out into the night. That's like... Right, we're Did past you have Gypsy to call it a, out? A right, 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 right. But okay. also, I think in 1979, I don't know if uh, they were societally past it yet. Like, they should have sure. been. Sure. But, yeah. Okay. That's curious well, to me. And this, there is arguably context in the scene, or like, the sentence isn't negative in and of itself, yeah. but imagine walking up to someone at a cocktail party, and they say this sentence for any reason. Yeah. Oh, yeah, so-and-so, blah, 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 blah. Like my son, he is married to a black woman. <laughs> <laughs> oh like, yeah, that's yeah. just he does. He keeps making a point of calling out that people are married to people of other races in right. a way that doesn't seem which worth in noting. his head could be yeah. trying to say, and I'm cool with that. And I think yeah. people like it's great that there's interracial couples, but it's just so weird how he constantly highlights. And yeah. his wife, the black woman I had mentioned, was and, also there. <laughs> and in, in particular, spouses of other races who are also characters we never meet or are never part of the plot. Right. Like, it's he's like just a token status thing way. that, oh, and he married a black woman. Yeah. Very progressive. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 <laughs> he calls the Hare Krishna people all those fake Hindu imbeciles. And I just oh, spoke I with that. them. And oh, a lot boy. of them are very <laughs> earnest. And have good thoughts that I think they do yeah, live by. I should have picked that up. It's not great. Um, yeah. I don't think a black or Hispanic would have been allowed in back in the good old days. <laughs> yeah. Talking about the Arapaho. I mean, I don't Probably remember the exact sarcastic. context, but I think he's sarcastic. Probably yeah. sarcastic. Yeah. This, I think, is not meant sarcastically, but homophobia was alive and well in the 70s. My revulsion at being kissed by a man was so fully automatic that I, like, wrenched away from Mary Kathleen. Yeah. And, uh, hey, I'll throw this out there. I've kissed the man. <laughs> Agents of Cracked, you all saw it. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's sure. not that bad. It's just I'm lips, straight, basically. and it's, it's kinda, fine. Yeah, yeah, it's whatever. Yeah. The ambulance drivers were both from Pakistan, so their English was primitive. All right, Grandpa. Yeah, not a great phrasing. I think she may have been slightly crazy. She had a miscarriage a year ago that probably had something to do with it. <laughs> oh, is it your time of the month? Like, that's a very, like, are you having woman problems? He says of his son... My family's not bald. His baldness must have been inherited from the Jewish side of the family, which is a very bizarre prejudice to have. And then last but not least, I do think this is a very funny story that we didn't get to, is uh, the short story about Einstein going to heaven. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we skipped over it because it's just another Trout story in there. But basically, in one of the Trout stories, Einstein goes to heaven, and it turns out when you get to heaven, 
the angels all argue with you that life was very fair and that you shouldn't blame God for any of the horrible things that happen on earth. Yeah. It's called a sleep at the switch. And they go like, so do you see how it was really your fault? Yeah. And basically when, b- before and the they- angels are completely capitalist. Like yes. all the things are, it's just an audit of you could have made more money here and there. That's it. Yes. And then at the end, God is basically a prick. Before you can get into heaven, you have to waive your right to complain, essentially. You have to say like, Yes, you're right. I see now. Life was totally fair. Every time I fucked up, it was my fault. Can I go to heaven now? And they're like, good, we're glad you agree. God's perfect. (laughs) Um, And it's basically just that to cover your ass. So Einstein gets there and he goes like, I did good shit, right? I was goddamn Albert Einstein. Like, I'll be remembered forever. And they're like, well, you could have been way richer. Like, do you see how in 1964 you should have invested in this in the stock market? And someone gave you that tip. You read it in the paper and you didn't do it. And Einstein, because he wants to get in heaven, is like, fine, I don't care. Skip, 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 skip. I, yeah, I he approve. just wants to play the fiddle, too. And he gets into heaven, and he decides, he meets all these people who only care about money, and he does a little calculation, and he decides to write to God and give him a note and says, basically, you know, God, I'm a something of a math whiz, and <laughs> I calculated that if everyone made all the money you said they could make, that's like 100 billion times the amount of money that ever existed in the history of Earth. So it's a lie to tell us all that we could have made that money because we're all interconnected. Like, how could we all be billionaires? What are you talking about? Then money would be worth less. Right. You know how it works. You're God. You made it that way. And God's response is, do you want me to take your fiddle away? Well, he sends an angel <laughs> yeah. to tell him that. Who says, we're going like... to take your goddamn fiddle away for eternity yeah. if you don't cut this shit out. And he goes, oh, never mind then. Retracted. I don't care. <laughs> so that's the story. It's a very funny story. Yeah. But the what in it is, I think... Einstein chooses to settle in the American part of heaven. And the fact that heaven is segregated by country of origin is hilarious to me. Yeah, I didn't see that as a what. That's just like funny. I do? It's just like Why a is idea. there like, there's a Polish part of heaven and it's, a Ugandan part of heaven? Because it's like, a shitty heaven. Like the whole story is okay. about a heaven where like God's angels are purely there to like confirm God is cool to everybody coming in. You know, it's a horrible heaven. All right, well, give me this one then. Fine, retract it. Then give me this one before you take my fiddle away. What about my last one, which is he is talking to Israel Adel. And he says, you know, this used to be the Arapahoe. And he goes, now it's not. And he says, through there used to be like a ballroom. What is it now? He goes, "Uh, gay porno theater. And he goes, what do you mean? Fist fucking videos. They show fist fucking videos. He goes, what's fist fucking? Like they have gay sex, but then at the end, they specialize in sticking their whole fist in their lover's ass. And Vonnegut does a long digression about how Do you see how technology becomes married with mankind's worst desires and becomes like, he's like, I never imagined we could give birth to something so monstrous and horrible. And I am here to ask, what is morally wrong with two consenting adults fist fucking each other? Right. No, it's fine. Yeah. It's it's fine. Yeah. It's totally fine. (laughs) If you're fist fucking your boyfriend while you listen to this. Fine. Fucking fine. I don't yeah, care. Great choice of tunes. It's not my for... particular fetish, but who cares? Who does it hurt? Yeah. So that's it. That's all my wets. Yeah. And we... I like to nitpick, Alex. Well, and we thank our listeners who yeah. are, are using this as their soundtrack for... Oh, uh, yeah. If this, is, if this podcast is your Barry White music, like that's... <laughs> we've achieved our goal. And let's get into another segment. I'm trying to make yeah. it very white now. Let's get uh, into foreplay. <laughs> this is a segment called Kurt Vonnegut Grades. Oh, great, yeah. Great, 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 great. Oh, boy. Great, great, great. I forgot. Great, great, great. This one. Great, great, great. 
this is where we, uh, if you've never heard the show before, in Vonnegut's book Palm Sunday, which is actually the next one he wrote after this, he gave himself grades on all of his past work relative to himself. So we uh, pick out some grades too. And he gave Jailbird an A, which is the same grade he gave Sirens of Titan, Mother Night, and God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater. It's just below the A plus he gave to Cat's Cradle and Slaughterhouse Five. So he says Jailbird's up there with the best. And I think it's a, I think it's a very good book. Like it felt like another like if Vonnegut was a TV show, this was like a solid episode in the middle of the season. Just like yeah, good, glad I watched it. Had some gems, had some like, I think he kind of got gotten out of the jail bed a little sooner and so on. But like, you know, just really solid. Another episode of Vonnegut, probably like a B plus. I feel that way about Slapstick as well. I think they're both second tier, but like right up there as strong second tier contenders right behind his like all time masterpieces. Yeah. So yeah, I very much liked it. The only uh, sling and arrow I'll throw at the plot that like affected my grading of it is he always uses serendipity. And I agree that life is chaotic and there's a lot of serendipity, but he even went too far for me this time. Like, I do think there's a point at which I'm like, I mean, I felt this way about Seinfeld. Manhattan is a very densely populated large place. On your first day in town, you run into three people that you knew throughout the course of the day by chance. Yeah. Just come off it, man. Right. <laughs> like, and then that day she gets hit by a cab of all the days that this crazy bag lady has been wandering around. Yeah. So just there is an intense amount of coincidence. He Big says time. small yeah. world like 90 times in it <laughs> to the point where I was like, fine, fine, fine. You don't care about the plot. I get it. It just happened because you're God. Fine. So that, I think, brings it down to an A- minus or a B plus. I agree. And it's funny to me, I think the real insight with these grades is he tends to grade, I feel like, based on how the book felt for him. And I yeah. don't, of course, well, I can never know that for sure. But the books that seem gut-wrenchingly bleak, he gives way lower grades, even if they're masterpieces. Like, this one is somewhat uplifting, and even though it ends with a disappointment, yeah. it's just, it's dry. It's like Rosewater. It's about economics, not his sister's death or his mother's suicide. I feel like he feels more comfortable grading those ones higher because he's like, it was upbeat. Like, I wasn't miserable the whole time I was writing it and thinking about it. Because I think you're, you're, you're right on that, like, it's very colored by his perception. I think his perception is very driven by how it felt while writing it, and also his reviews. He cares about his reviews. And uh, this book, in one of his letters, he tells his daughter, Nanette, that, quote, finishing it, which is Jailbird, at last will be like having a curse or a tumor removed. So I don't necessarily know that he loved the process of writing it, but it was very well reviewed. Like the New York Times said it was his best since Mother Night and Cat's Cradle. And uh, they never ended up making a movie out of it, which we'll get to later. Wait, uh, doesn't that make it better than Slaughterhouse-Five? Yes, that's yeah. incorrect, but it's yeah, still I, very good. I don't agree with it. <laughs> yeah. But like, it got him a really nice burst of positive reviews sure. after negative ones for Slapstick. And yeah. so I think he was so buoyed by everybody else liking it that it retroactively made him happier about and it. And that's so funny to even give a shit about reviews because I do – and I know you disagree. You didn't like Slapstick as much. Yeah. But I do think for someone to say like Slapstick, all the critics roundly agreed was mediocre and this one we all roundly agree is a masterpiece – it has to be like, well, you just don't like sci-fi then. Because Slapstick still showed all the skill and verve of Vonnegut. It just had a bunch yeah. of wacky sci-fi stuff in it. And just because this one's like in modern day, I guess it's fine. I don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, feel I, the bias there. No, I, 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 yeah, I agree that there's not like a massive quality difference between Slapstick and Jailbird. Yeah. Right. And uh, like I, I Or think- to justify like one hitting huge and one pan being panned I think is silly. Yeah. 
maybe I just prefer Jailbird because it has like all the Christian stuff in it or labor yeah. stuff. I don't know. I don't know why, mm. but it it is weird that critics were like wildly different on the two yeah, of them because they're both. Like we said, they're both the first two steps in his sort of tack and changing his writing a bit. Yes, and, and, so, uh, and as a result... And so how would they be completely different? In their quality? tone feels weird. similar, yeah. Yeah, they really match, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, and in terms of people being excited about it, one of the ways that he is excited is that, according to his letters, there were attempts to make it a movie. Speaking of, let's get into another segment called Movie Time. Oh, Hollywood. Boy. Rubbing my hands together suggestively. Hollywood is bringing love. the girls. Hand rubbing producers of the. Okay. Yep. Uh, movie time is where we talk about either uh, actual adaptations of the books or how we would adapt it. Jailbird was not made into a movie ever is... that you could find. No, because uh, we've been surprised sometimes. Someone's like, "Here's a YouTube link to a made-for-TV Christopher Walken movie of this." You're like, "Whoa, yeah. that exists." <laughs> well, also, and I think it speaks to partly this was a book I kind of hadn't even heard of, even as I became a Vonnegut fan. Like, it was one that didn't come up very often or get mentioned much. According to Vonnegut's letters, and he may be coloring it differently than it actually went, but, like, he was working very hard right after it came out and sold well and was reviewed well to make it a movie. He wrote a letter in September 1979 saying that he had had lunch with Patty Chayevsky. Quote, he is crazy about Jailbird, as you know. He gave me an outline of the book scene by scene. He said I would have to do the script that nobody else could maintain the tone, you know. Yeah. Uh, so I think Vonnegut was very confident that, like, this is going to be a movie. I nailed it. And it wasn't a movie. But I think as we prepped this, you talked about how you could see there being a movie there. It's one of and the I most right. filmic of all. Yeah, there's I really, like, uh, yeah. especially for being an author who I think is very hard to make a movie a lot of the time. Yes. This one is like a strong candidate for it, and I never hear about it being a potential movie. And I'm not it's even weird. saying whether that makes it better or worse. It's just incredibly visual, incredibly funny. Yeah. It's structured like a farce. There's scenes with lots of funny dialogue. Yeah. And there's funny visuals that happen. I mean, and there's just arresting visuals. The roof of the Empire State Building, that whole harp sequence. Oh, yeah. The setting and the birds and everything, it's so surreal and cool. Like, it would be a beautiful on film. Just that scene would be beautiful. The shot of Leland Clues with the Hare Krishnas behind him as he dances and waves his finger is this amazing contrivance that he's done to get this very visual impression set up. Yeah. Where he says, and thus did Leland Clues become to look like the lead character in a romantic comedy was about to start singing. And you're like, that you wouldn't Looks have great. to say in a movie. Like, that's such a great shot that would just take care of itself in a movie. Yeah. And here you are describing it, and you wouldn't even have to. And you could shoot that. And you could bounce between those beautiful moments to also, like, Walter in his crummy office in the sub-basement of the Nixon administration where the walls have turned yellow because he's a chain smoker. There's, like, guys trying to hide the bribes, you know? You yeah. have such a range of moments and visuals and and pretty nicely plot-driven adventures. Like, the scene like where McCone catches him and disowns him is fucking hilariously visual. Yeah. There is a naked girl hiding under the covers on the bed. His father figure busts in holding up a newspaper that he edited, trying to tell him, I hate you, you're out of the family. But he's so upset he can only stutter. So they have to do like charades with him guessing what he's trying to say to him. And because he just had (laughs) sex and he's staying at a friend's house who collects like African tribal things, he's only wearing a robe made of wooden shingles tied together with like ceremonial wool. So he's a naked dude in an African robe who's super white, 
being like, welcome, the room still smells like sex. Wait, what's what's wrong? What are you trying to say? Yeah. Oh, you're disowning me? Okay, got it. Cool, and man. then the guy just leaves. Great. Never having said a word, only being able to stammer and gesticulate the right. whole time. Just like a, That's yeah. so funny as a movie. Way funnier even than in book yeah. form. Yeah, it's actually, it's like uh, Michael Palin in Fish Called Wanda, like where he's just, yes. kind of, they make the stuttering play and it's constantly a thing. Yeah. He takes a shit in the corner of his cell and dumps a giant bowling trophy in the shit. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everything's so visual in ways that some of his books aren't. Yeah, yeah. Well, and also, and so as far as making it a movie, our dream movie, I also think there's a lot of themes in here that, as we've been saying, are super resonant now, like especially about labor and about mm. whether, like, the, you know, whether the government should be trustworthy and things like yeah. that. And so I think as far as a director, I'd want somebody who could like, go ahead and put their own stamp on it. Like I think uh, somebody who'd be, you know, faithful within reason to the book, but also really make it kind of their own thing and speak to whichever themes they thought were the most important. Plus jokes. Does that, yeah. do you have someone in mind? I think this might be a good one, uh, maybe for Scorsese, because there's also a lot of like schemes and world events and uh, random people kind of flowing in and out of people's lives. And I think he could really make that move and make that exciting. And I don't know, I feel like Goodfellas is the touchstone I keep thinking of for what he does. And I think he could yeah. do that very well, or a little bit like, you know, Wolf of Wall Street it with all the things about the economy and how that works. I hadn't thought about director enough ahead of time. Part of me wants to say like Chris Nolan or Darren Aronofsky, because I keep seeing these beautiful set piece images like the Hare Krishnas or the birds in the glass yeah. of the Empire State Building. And I want a director that makes images that blow me away. That's cool. Like the fountains yeah. sucked, but the images were very competently put together all the yes. way through. Yeah. But then I, as you say that, I'm like, I completely forgot the humor component. It's so funny and it should be someone who can do beautiful shots, but it should really be a comedy. Yeah. And not feel like a Terrence Malick or something. It should really feel like a farce. So maybe Adam McKay. <laughs> like yeah, that's a time. big spread. But I'm jumping from Darren Aronofsky to like, well, since the Big Short had some decent cinematography in it, maybe yeah. Adam McKay. Yeah, because he'd get at and least think, nail all the jokes. I think I picked him for maybe Rosewater or something. Like there a past go. one that was like along these lines. Yeah, yeah. he's he's yeah. good with. I He'd mean, he knows how to do wry satirical comedy. So there you go. Yeah, and then the cast. The cast is what uh, I was rubbing my hands yeah, in excitement yeah. about. There's so many, I, I, I guess Walter's the key character to pick, and then his uh, maybe his loves and everybody else. Yeah, I got everything. I'm yeah. going to blast through them. Cool. Can I go first? Yeah, go for it. All right, Walter F. Starbuck. We want young and old, because we have the flashbacks and the flash forwards. Right. Think back to Men in Black 3, my friend. I'm going to go Josh Brolin, Tommy Lee Jones, reunited. Oh, man. Josh Brolin is the best Tommy Lee Jones. He's better than Tommy Lee He's Jones incredible. at being Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah. So I and I think Tommy Lee Jones is right for the old guy. So so they're a set to me. That's a cool one. Yeah. Sarah Wyatt, Janelle Monet is my pick for that. The woman who thinks sex is silly and gets really mad at him when he tips too much. Ruth, his wife from the concentration camp, who's very wise and capable. Francis McDormand. Hey, yeah. Get some Cohen stank Cohen, on there. Uh, yeah, yeah. Mary Kathleen O'Looney, we need a young and an old. And when uh -huh. she's young, she needs to be sort of a, I think, someone who should emanate a bit of sadness naturally in their acting style, but otherwise can carry on a very intelligent conversation with him about politics. And then when she's old, she needs to be a crazy bag lady in New York who calls everyone, you rich farts. <laughs> so I'm going to go with Mara Wilson slash Kathy Bates. Oh, great. Mara Wilson grows yeah, into great. Kathy Bates. <laughs> Clyde Carter. 
I'm going to say I, or you don't have to abide by this, but I figured I couldn't do Jimmy Carter because he's dead. He's alive. Oh, well then, cameo from <laughs> President Jimmy he's, Carter. He's very old, but he's alive, yeah. <laughs> I was, I almost looked it up and I didn't. I was like, the last time I was aware of him being alive was the King of the Hill episode from like nine years ago. Yeah, he's battling cancer and stuff, but I okay. think he's alive, yeah. Well, then he probably doesn't want to be doing our stupid movie. So I would yeah. say... Change Clyde Carter to Clyde Letterman and have David Letterman play him. Because <laughs> if you read those scenes, I, I think retired David Letterman with the beard is a perfect sociological analog for our time. I never, I never. To being even... like, whoa, you're related to that famous guy, right? Like it's equally out of left field and like. No, I, well, I, also, I never thought of David Letterman as a Carter lookalike, but like he could be Carter in like an SNL sketch where they need a Carter. If you, know? you were like, willing to squint, him. yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's uh, amazing. But I, I would literally that. change it and make it he's David Letterman's third cousin instead of President yeah. Carter's third cousin. Because <laughs> I would also update it to modern day. Yeah. Bob Fender, Michael Shannon. Oh, cool. Yeah. And I'll have you know he's described as looking like Charles Lindbergh. And Lindbergh looks a bit like Michael Shannon. Michael Shannon can also, I think, be a guy in prison who crazily does not regret anything he did. <laughs> totally nail that. Uh, Cleveland yeah. Laws, who, if you'll remember, is the reverse Leland of Leland Cl- Clues. Clues. Yeah. Cleveland Laws, Donald Glover. Okay, yeah. Leland Clues, Brian Cranston. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think he can do comedy. Yeah. I think he often doesn't get to play in comedy that are comedies that are good enough for him right. since Malcolm in the Middle. But we know he can do it. Yeah. And uh, being like a nice old ebullient funny guy, I think he has that in him. He Arpad Lean, who basically I think has to carry the most of the farce. Arpad Lean has the longest scenes that are like just funny. Yeah. John Malkovich. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's my favorite pick of all. That's actually the pick that, that made me write cool. you and say we should do movie time. John Malkovich would kill Arpad Lane. Yeah. You'd, like, as like, the guy right. who is obsequiously trying to seduce a man they mistakenly right. think is a woman. <laughs> right. That, he would just be so good at that. Yeah. I keep thinking of his Burn After Reading character, like a little bit exactly. of that. Exactly. Like that memoir me too. kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. He would say memoir, of course. <laughs> Frank Ubreico, who is the nice uh, chef with the oh, French fried you're, hand. You're really going deep on, going deep. on casting everybody. Well, this is because I just watched The Founder also. <laughs> Nick Offerman oh. plays one of the McDonald's founders in The Founder. Okay. And I could transplant him directly into this. Yeah. And he'd be really funny as, and you know, the character all the time, like one of his lines is, why am I here? You served breakfast to me this morning. I served breakfast to everyone this morning. <laughs> it's very Nick Offerman. Uh, last but not least, Israel Dell, the guy at the Arapaho who's deadpan but really smart and saying like, well, it's a hotel now, fist-fucking videos. Reggie Watts. And I'm out. Alphabetical. Oh, okay. I did it in alphabetical. <laughs> no, I didn't. Oh, wow. But Reggie Watts was last. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's wow. my cast. Yeah. And I got to say, uh, I'm. if you read the book along with us, I think you're probably tickled because I think that's a dynamite yeah. cast. I'm very pleased with it. <laughs> that's a good group. You even covered like young old and stuff. And I tried to keep them all a lot. Yeah. Living actors that could conceivably do this movie right now. Yeah. If you're one of our fans, please call all of them. Oh, yeah. We need their help. John Malkovich and Brian Cranston listen together always on their carpool <laughs> to Vana guys. <laughs> Where are they carpooling to? I'm Hollywood. looking down the. I'm like They're carpooling to Hollywood. Yes, <laughs> may, the only thing we could hope for is there's some slim chance Mara Wilson could hear this someday. 
Yeah, no yeah, one else on this list will ever be aware this happened. <laughs> <laughs> and we're gonna keep it that way. And we'll keep it that way. I like that cast a lot. I'm not. I'm, I, Thank I, you, I feel like I shouldn't run through like. Oh yeah, I'm not gonna one. shit on your cast. You don't have to <laughs> shit on mine. Let's hear what you got. You I did only, just some more of the major characters, right? Yeah, I got deep with it. I stuck to yeah, just a few of them. And I uh, with Walter, a main Walter. I did uh, do young and old as you did. I thought young would go Martin Starr. And then uh, old oh. old John Hawks because John Hawks is my Vonnegut Stop standard it actor. with the John Hawks, and he's fine. a great actor. But he I think is great. Martin Starr in particular is really good at playing a, a piece of shit, and uh, <laughs> I think that Ed, Ed Walter is kind of that, especially young Walter. And so sure. I think that would be a perfect fit for him being a jerk, but also you still enjoy seeing him. Presumably uh, more Silicon Valley Martin Starr than Freaks and Geeks Martin Starr then. Yeah. Oh, like, yeah. Yeah, not, like yeah. an aggressive jerk. Yeah. And Party Down Martin Starr, yeah. too, where he's, yeah. And then for Mary Kathleen O'Looney, I actually, I think one person could be young and old. She's a comedian named Heather Ann Campbell, uh, who's in The Midnight Show here in The LA. name rings a bell. I mean, yeah. Uh, she's also been on Whose Line Is It Anyway, like the new version. And she's incredible at kind of like big characters and passionate people. And I think would be very good for the young one and also old one. She'd just adjust her performance. Oh, yeah. And if you're a comedy fan, you recognize her. Yeah. I mean, I look at her face and I go, oh, yeah, she's in tons of stuff all the time. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But needs a big movie like this. She does. She Uh, deserves it. Ruth, I thought Maggie Siff would be really good. She's in uh, Mad Men and Sons of Anarchy and Billions. And uh, and I think would bring a nice like gravity to that, you know. For Sarah, I thought Alice Wetterlund, who is also on Silicon Valley and is a comedian and would be... I think really good at being at finding everything really funny as the character Sarah does. Yeah. Uh, but also still having like a core to her too. Leland Clues, I thought Army Hammer because I think Leland should probably be somebody who really comes off as blue blood and blue blood in a way that Walter doesn't. Uh, Army Hammer's the Winklevoss twins and uh, yeah, I'm I'm looking up every person you name. I'm so out of the loop with like these are young hot actors from now. I'm also I don't know any of them. I'm also going like semi obscure (laughs) on all of it. I think like it it just uh, it fits for me. I don't know why. Like obviously the name Army Hammer's stuck in my head because if you ever hear it, you don't forget it. But like (laughs) I'm looking at funny. (laughs) I'm even looking at his face and I don't know who he is. (laughs) Yeah, he's the Winklevoss twins in the social network. And he's the Lone Ranger. And the Lone Ranger. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, and then the only other person I thought to cast is Walter Jr. Mm-hmm. And I thought it would be, especially because we see him basically just as an adult, but yeah. also I would just like him to be the young version too, a Judah Friedlander, just because yeah, Vonnegut makes, makes him sense. such a like a schlumpy, yeah. worse version of Walter. Yeah. I think Judah could pull that off and also be funny about Judah's being a schlub. No a offense, jerk. Judah. <laughs> yeah, no offense. And you're wonderful. But he would play a really funny version of schlubby. Book I writing. agree. Yeah. And there's also, there's a weird, uh, in the epilogue of the book, Vonnegut talks about the characters making a movie of, like, some of their own story. Yes. And Al Pacino and also the actor Kevin McCarthy, who in real life was in the Happy Birthday Wanda June play. He, yeah, he fantasy casts his own uh, thing a So he, bit. like, fantasy casts a movie about a side plot right. of the book. And he says that weird. a seminal part of his life took place in the apartment from Love Story. Yeah. Which is not true. <laughs> like, the apart- yeah. that movie has a scene in an apartment, and he made it. Part of this fictional character's life that that was their apartment. Yeah, some odd. Those were odd decisions. Yeah, Just like a weird Funny. bleed over of all that yeah. stuff. Yeah, cut, think- print it. That's a wrap. Yeah, <laughs> and that takes us into a kind of similarly named new segment called Music Time. It's la, 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 like la, la, la. a movie. We both went singing right away. It's great. With no <laughs> eyes, <laughs> let's use our ears to hear. 
Um, yeah, I'm going to lead this segment if that's all right. Go for it. Because I brought it up to you and yeah. did all the research so you <laughs> can just go, wow. What? Um, I wanted to talk about four songs that are mentioned or the events are mentioned and yeah. there's sort of their historical significance in this. So our first song is the Edith Piaf song that's explicitly mentioned. Bob Fender sings it constantly. It means I regret nothing. Non, je ne regret rien. Yeah. Rien. It's that song in Inception that they used to boot people out of the Inception. Yes, and I found out the actual orchestral score of Inception is a supremely slowed down version of the same song. Oh yeah, like that wah too. thing, like the. Uh, I don't think literally like the, the, when it's used as a sound effect, oh. but the theme, the creepy brooding theme that is used throughout, just the score essentially, oh, cool. is also, which makes total sense, right? Because when it's you awesome. enter the different worlds, everything gets slowed down. So as the score, they just use the same song way slowed down. That's really cool. Cool idea, yeah. yeah. Edith Piaf basically was France's version of Frank Sinatra, including she had mob ties. Unlike Frank, she gave she distanced herself from the mob eventually and gave up her mob ties yeah. after she was implicated in the murder of her manager. But she eventually cleared herself of that, and it was just sort of thought, well, he was tied in with the mob, and something finally caught up with him, and he was killed. She avoided all mob connections from that point forward and went on to have this amazing career as France's most famous chanteuse, yeah. which is female cabaret singer, uh, wrote and performed many number one hits. And the great thing about this song, uh, the reason I compare it to Sinatra, it's basically I did it my way. It's just yeah. the French I did it my way. And it is equally stirring. It's an incredible vocal performance. And... Uh, it's just this very stirring, like, fuck you, world, I did it my way song. I like it better than I did it my way. Great yeah. song. And the Foreign Legion famously adopted it after they failed to keep Algeria from becoming an independent nation. <laughs> when the Foreign Legionnaires were being marched out of Algeria forcibly, they all sang, we regret nothing. Oh, cool. Like, we would have oppressed That's, you again I mean, if we could have. Yeah, I shouldn't say cool to colonialism. But, but you know, I like it's, how it's, it's, it's yeah, I, it's in a very vonnegut way, it's tied into the history of fascism and capitalism and independence from those things as well yeah next up ohio by crosby stills nash and young yeah a very famous guitar riff famous clip That is about the Kent State shootings. There's also a photo, famous photo of that shooting that won the Pulitzer Prize. You can find online if you want. It's pretty traumatic. Of a 14-year-old runaway named Mary Ann Vecchio, who is uh, standing in shock and horror over one of the students who was shot on campus that day. And basically, they were protesting the Vietnam War and the expansion of the Vietnam War into Cambodia. The National Guard was called out. They shot some of the... It escalated, and they shot some of the kids. Four. Four dead in Ohio is the lyric. Yeah. And uh, the lyrics specifically talk about Marianne Vecchio in that famous photo. It was written right after it happened. It came out, like, weeks after the news broke. Yeah. Became a big hit. They got in significant controversy and trouble more than I knew, specifically because it mentions Nixon, Tin Soldiers and Nixon's coming. And Nixon actually didn't approve the use of the National Guard in that instance. It was approved by the state's governor. Okay. Uh, so, you know, right-wing people at the time were like, you're getting your facts wrong, Neil Young. So there was a lot of controversy, and that was just a fucking kick-ass song right about these themes and, and in here. One, yeah. Kent State is mentioned in the book several times. 
Yeah, it comes up early in the book when Walter's working for the Nixon administration. He's like supposed to help them craft a response to it. That was actually the only time Nixon ever asked him to do anything was, yeah. what should we say about the Kent State Massacre? Yeah, yeah. And he said the right thing. He said, you know, we should say that it's a tragedy whenever young people lose their lives and blah, blah, blah. And Nixon was like, shut up. <laughs> um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's more to it. But uh, And then last but not least in music time, I want to briefly discuss two Bob Dylan songs. One is sort of a spiritual sequel to another. He first wrote The Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll. Williams and singer killed poor Hattie Carroll. With a cane that he twirled round his diamond ring finger at a Baltimore Hotel Society gathering. And the cops were called in and his weapon took from him. Which was about this crazy news story where this dude famously gets drunk, goes to multiple, William Zanzanger is his name, goes to multiple establishments, buys a toy cane, beats people with the cane all night like it's a prank, calls all the serving staff the N-word, and says, like, get me my drink faster, N-word, and then when they come, goes like, you're a damn black SOB, and beats them with a cane, turns to his friend and laughs, like, see how funny I'm being? Isn't this hilarious? And uh, one of the wait staff, Hattie Carroll, had a brain aneurysm and died, basically because they said because he hit her with the cane, but he actually only got six months in prison because they were able to prove, which I think is true, is that she died from the intense stress of being physically and verbally abused all night and being like an elderly woman. Right. Her heart gave and out that, and then her brain hemorrhaged. And Not, that's happened with other people uh, grabbed right. by the police too But lately. just because yeah. he was specifically charged with beating her to death with a cane, he was able to prove like, well, I didn't do that. Right. So he got off in six months. Bob Dylan wrote a song to draw attention to the fact that it's goddamn bullshit, yeah. uh, which he successfully did. And I'll have you know... But William Zanzanger then committed a bunch of fraud, became a slumlord of specifically black neighborhoods, yeah. and was sued and then went to jail again. So just a fucking piece of shit. And Bob Dylan helped put him away. And uh, in his last interview before he died, Zanzanger said, Bob Dylan doesn't know shit and it was all a lie. And no, it hasn't affected my life at all. Bullshit, dude. You got what you deserved and Bob Dylan served it to you. You suck. It's <laughs> <laughs> my message for him. And then the much better known song, which Bob Dylan, this is what I didn't know, people appealed to him to write this song because of Hattie Carroll. So when Hurricane Carter, a boxer, was falsely accused of murder and put in jail for murder that it is now very clear he probably didn't commit, and whether he did or not, just like Serial, all the police work was racist as hell and like false. Yeah. So even if he did it, he didn't get a fair trial at all. And... People literally came to Bob Dylan and, like, lobbied him, write another masterpiece to get this guy out of jail. Yeah. That became the song Hurricane. Pistol shots ring out in a bar room night. It's a Betty Valentine from the floor above. She sees a bartender in a pool of blood. Cries out, they've killed my love. Here comes the story of the hurricane. The man the authorities came to blame. For something that he never done But in a prison cell But one time he could have been The champion of the world Inspired the movie uh, And he was eventually released and, And it was overturned So a lot of music in this book And a lot of Or a number of references to protest music 
Yeah. And I think uh, that it was important that we talk about some protest songs that actually had an effect on the world. Yeah. And, and those were four. Yeah. yeah. And here, he has good taste. These are great songs. Yeah. All better than the Statler brothers, I would say. Sorry, Kurt. Hey, they're hey. fine. They're as white <laughs> as can goddamn be. <laughs> yeah. With their big 70s stashes and their bell bottoms. <laughs> the way I'm dressed now. What's wrong with that? Yep. Uh, if you're at home, that's how I'm dressed. Uh, speaking of recommending stuff, I think that leads us into another segment, which we call Related Reading. Hooray! Now I'm confused because you said speaking of recommending. Is it related or recommended? I always forget. I think it's related, but it's things we're recommending. If you've never heard the show before, these are just other writings and things that remind us of the book. Our teas are not endorsements, mm-hmm. and uh, here are some books we like. Yeah, I got three. Sort How of many a joke you got? Do it. I have three, yeah. Okay, cool. My first one's a short story by Guy de Maupassant. I'm going to oh. spell that for people. G-U-Y space D-E space <laughs> M-A-U-P-A-S-S-A-N-T. Yeah. And if you read it, it's you read it in school because it was assigned. I certainly did. Yeah. But it, it rules. It's a great short story. It's called The Necklace. Yes. Uh, yeah. With a famous twist ending that I'm not going to give away. That's very much on the themes of this book. Yeah. Um, but that's all I'm going to say because yeah. it's short with like an O. Henry twist. So why would I tell you the end? Yeah. And, <laughs> and how it relates will become clear. Yeah. And if yeah, you want, you can even just it. read the description on Wikipedia. And it's still a pretty good like, oh, yeah, that's a good elevator pitch. The ending is cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My first one would be the novel Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. It's about an unnamed black man who's the narrator who uh, spends a lot of his time living underground in very deep places, also works his way through the college system and finds that it's not all it's cracked up to be, and just continues to sort of fumble through a society that is cruel in way after way after way. And Vonnegut was a fan of it and Mm -hmm. uh, knew of it and spoke well of it. And it's also from decades before this book. And I think Jailbird is a little bit patterned after that story, even though it's about very different people in America. And it's specifically about the African-American experience, right? Right. In the case yeah. of The Invisible Man. Yeah, cool. yeah. So Vonnegut is writing Jailbird from the experience of a guy who's uh, white and much more inside of society, but then sure. I think falls out of it because he's not, he's just not philosophically lined up with yes. society. But uh, Invisible Man, I read it in high school and it's been a while, but it's an amazing piece of work and, and uh, worth checking out. It sounds like I'd love that because as much yeah. as I like Jailbird, there were a couple times where he complained about something that I made a note, white people problems. Like, yes. Like there's people in the society next door to you that have way worse problems than that to complain about. But that's fine. You know, everyone's yeah. suffering is relative. <laughs> uh, my next one is a play. It's been made into a movie. It was made into a show on HBO. I still prefer the play version. Reading the script was my favorite way of imbibing it. So I recommend you read the play, Angels in America, A yeah. Gay Fantasia on National Themes, Part 1, Millennium Approaches. Well, you can read both parts. They're both good. But part one heavily features Roy M. Cohn as a character. And I thought it was funny how Roy Cohn is an important character to know about. He appears in Jailbird, and Jailbird does not do nearly enough to shit on him and let you know what a monster he was as a historical figure. And uh, Angels in America does. You get a lot of info about Roy Cohn. He's a fascinating, complex character, not pure evil, but a lot of him is evil. And uh, very interesting and important historical figure. I've only seen the HBO version, but Roy Cohn is particularly... Fascinating. Is it, it's Pacino in that? It's Pacino. Pacino yeah. is Cone. And, and yeah. the end of what's the first episode in the HBO miniseries, there's a scene between Pacino and then uh, James Cromwell, who's playing his doctor. 
and it's one of the best just scenes so of all time. Yeah. It's incredible. Tony Kushner with a K. Yeah, in Tony case Kushner. You, yeah. you could Google any part of Angels in America and you'll find it. But that's a great play. Yeah. And, and it, a good and HBO show. Thematically such yeah. a thing for this, even beyond Roy Cohn. Like, totally. If you don't have time to read like most of our listeners, I'll say again because I haven't said in a while, you do not need to keep up with us in order to enjoy the podcast. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you can watch it on HBO as well. That's great. Yeah, my uh, the, uh, next one here is a short story by George Saunders. It's called Escape from Spiderhead, and it's a particularly dark one. It's in his collection, 10th of December. You can also read it for free on the New Yorker's website. Cause Inspired the film there. Escape from New York, I believe. Uh, right? No? Yeah. No. The basic premise is that, that it's a guy in a modern prison where they're experimenting on the prisoners for profit. And uh, so there's a lot of things about jail and also oh, corporations. So nonfiction. And, <laughs> and kind of things that are happening. Uh, and also uh, even ties into Vonnegut themes about people being chemicals and, and how that drives what we do. And it's, it's a heart ripper, but it's really great. Yeah. My last one, last but not least, and I say the reverse here. I don't care if you've seen the movie. And if you haven't seen the movie, I wish you wouldn't. I wish you should just read the source material. Yeah. Vomit it out of your head. V for Vendetta. (laughs) V for Vomit. Yeah. The film is not bad. It's fine as an action movie goes. I've only seen the film. But the film, oh, okay. Then you have no idea how good it is. Okay. It's a masterpiece on the order of Watchmen, and the film does not let you know that. The film is fine. It's a competent action movie, but you only care about the human characters and like what their situation is. The comic book by Alan Moore and David Lloyd is painfully clear in the way that Jailbird is painfully clear. This book is a primer to teach you what anarchism is as a set of political beliefs, that it doesn't mean burn everything down. What is it as a real functioning belief set? What do anarchists believe? And convince you that they, it might not be such a bad thing or set of beliefs. And it is incredibly convincing. By the time I finished reading it, I was that annoying, like anti-Ayn Rand kid, where I'm like, you know, capitalism is, you know, all governments are inevitably the enemy of the people that comprise that nation. Yeah. And I will say now, 20 years later, after having read it for the first time, I still hold on to ideas from anarchism. I would not call myself an anarchist. I see a lot of flaws in their thinking. But whatever you call my set of political beliefs, there's one or two anarchist things in there. And they, I learned them from books like V for Vendetta. So read the comic. It's a fucking comic. It's it's short and it's great. I'll bet it's like Watchmen where the movie was like fine, but the book is unbeatable. Because the movie is not bad. The Watchmen movie is fine. It's fine. They're both fine. Right. But when you read the book, you're like, oh, it's a philosophical treatise. And they dumbed it down to just being a decent action movie. Yeah. But it's actually a treatise on politics and philosophy. Oh, shit. Right, you know, yeah. like how the world works. So V for Vendetta. Oh, sounds great. I should read it. Yeah. One, uh, I guess uh, this semi-relates, I haven't seen the TV show of it yet, but I would recommend the novel American Gods by Neil the Gaiman. The show is so good. Oh, great. I Have am, you read it too? I've never read the book. Oh, okay. And I love that I don't know the ideas. Like, I like, <laughs> because the show is doing a I, great job. I know job. what you mean, but that was a funny way to put it. Yeah. The show is not <laughs> foreshadowing, and it, you actually have to commit because, like, the show does not explain Wednesday or even, for lack of oh. a better word, the premise. Yeah. 
episode four, you're finally like, <laughs> oh, they're trying to get people to believe in them. Like, you don't even know that oh. for three episodes. Cool. But it's going great. The first seven so far are awesome. Oh, okay. Yeah, I should check it out. Highly recommend uh, the show. The book is fantastic. And it also, I think I thought of it because it begins from a place of main character in jail, how and why they're in jail is very strange. And then they're going to go on a rambling journey through the country to try to figure out what the bones of America are. And what's really yeah. going on. And the novel's obviously thing. much more mythological and much more fantastical. Vana gets pretty grounded in Jailbird. There's not really any sci-fi or fantastical element. But it's it's a really well-written uh, piece of work. It also has my favorite description of Chicago. So check that out. But yeah, it's a great novel. And, and, well, uh, wait, what's the description of Chicago? Or is it like a paragraph? Oh, it's just a line. It's that um, they're driving, because they're driving into it. And uh, at the start of the chapter, if I, I want to quote it right, I think it's Chicago happens slowly like a headache. Dope. And that's driving yeah. into Chicago. Like just the suburbs sure. become the city in a way that's imperceptible as a driver. It's great. That yeah. would have been a good Blues Brothers line as well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like a headache. <laughs> We're on a mission from Gad. Yeah, man, I got to read that graphic novel, and and uh, I should probably read Angels in America. I should yeah. catch up on things. Yeah. You guys should read some stuff, too. And, we uh, gave you lots of homework this time. Yeah, yeah, because it's great. And we would normally do Vonnegut News. There's not a ton of, like, Vonnegut News in the world, other than we had a live show of Palm Sunday. It's going to be our next episode in the feed, and uh, I think we had a really great time doing it. Oh, it was a blast, yeah. yeah. But and that's also where I found out by mingling with the audience that you don't have to read all the books to be listening to the podcast. I would say yeah, the majority people... of the people were like, either I haven't ever read the books and I still like the podcast, or... I read the book in high school 30 years ago, and I still enjoy the podcast. So that's good yeah, to know. because people yeah. have told us that online, too. But uh, yeah, it's nice to hear it in person. Yeah, and the best so thing like, of all, people have told us, I never heard of Kurt Vonnegut or never picked one up, and now I love him. Yeah. That's great. That was amazing. That's great. Yeah. So thank you, Vana friends. And uh, that'll be coming soon. Also, there's just like stuff going on with podcasting here in a good way. Mm. Uh, we're doing uh, in the Cracked Podcast main feed, there's a mini series hosted by Soren about grooming and uh, how that affects characters in fiction. It's very mm-hmm. like heady about that in a good way. And there will be other new podcasts coming from Cracked in like the next few months. Watch the Cracked Podcast feed for that. And of course, we'll still be doing this show, Kurt Vana, guys. Next episode that will come out is that Palm Sunday live episode. And then after that, we'll do Dead Eye Dick, which is his novel from 1982, copyright Ramjack Corporation. And uh, I actually haven't read that one, so I'm looking forward to that, too. This is, this is going to be kind of a sequence of books I haven't read. I have. Ooh. So role reversal. That Don't hasn't, tell me about well, it. I think this is the first time that's happened, where you had one you hadn't that I have. So uh, It actually might be, yeah, because there's, yeah. there's been a couple neither of us had read, like this one in Player Piano, I think. Yeah, then, yeah. I'm going to spoil the shit out of it. No! <laughs> Not like in the first few paragraphs, Vonnegut wouldn't tell you everything that happens is going to happen in the book. <laughs> He's a real self-spoiler. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's so. his way. Uh, get, so that's coming up. Get and... your get your dick on and catch up with us <laughs> down the road. Yeah, and uh, and we're excited to bring you that stuff and more. And thanks for being Arvana friend as we continue on through Kurt Vonnegut's works. If this isn't nice, I don't know what is. Hey.